0: Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Struck Nerve. This is their track, Common Ground, which is an exclusive track that Youngblood let us play to support the record, which came out today. I'm really excited for Struck Nerve, who are all a bunch of guys from Philadelphia and the suburbs who have been in bands over the last 10 years and continuing to push the legacy of Philadelphia Hardcore. i want to keep this one short just because the interview we're about to get into is quite long. However, an introduction needs to be made. When I first started even thinking about what I was going to cover on this podcast, I knew once I had a common theme in some of the people that I was looking to speak to, that Tim Bohr was going to have to be on the show. Not only because he has become a close friend and a mentor and a big brother to me, but just his entire story, his impact on hardcore the way that he views the world, both in a very professional manner while still keeping his feet tied into the DIY punk rock roots that he talks about in this episode, this podcast series would be absolutely incomplete if we didn't have him speak on it. And over the next three hours, you're going to hear someone who I not only look to for inspiration and advice, but I look up to as someone who has always played the game the way he needed to play. And still managed to be a success, not only within the hardcore scene, but in the metal and just overall in the booking culture that is American music industry. And if you know Tim, as many of you probably listening to, it's going to be good for you to hear some of his high moments, some of his early moments. And just really break down the who, the where, and the why with him. Tim Bohr. Is someone who completely changed the landscape of hardcore, of American metal, and of metalcore. And also is someone who has one of the biggest laughs that fills a room. One of the biggest smiles in an entire crowd. And just someone who supports his friends in a way, not only when you do good, but can give you the real hard truth and lead you back to light when you fail. I really can't tell you how much he has done for me because at every turn within what I do, I find more things that I can look to that Tim has either already taught me or ways that I can learn from what he's done. I really hope that you enjoy this as much as I did recording it and listening to this. So let's just rock because this one's a long one. We are talking to Tim Bohr, possibly one of the few humans... That I can say, not only personally as a mentor and as a big brother and as a friend, who I know he has had his hand like a bricklayer writing and pushing the foundations of what is now we all know as hardcore and also into the metal world through promoting shows and also as being one of the most prolific, important, powerful, and just influential booking agents of the last 30 years And I am amazed that after all the times we've name dropped you on other episodes that we could make this happen. And I'm excited to have you disseminate and instruct us on what it was like to be Tim Moore and what it is like to be Tim Moore now.
1: It's like to talk about it, man. uh, Let's get into it, man.
0: Now, I always start off with the simple things because it's good to have a basis in what your home life was and how it directed you towards this crazy culture of ours. I know you have some wild brothers and I know you had an amazing father. What was the first bit of music in your home that you think was probably the jump off point to eventually point you in this direction?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, man. Um, You know, I started listening to, you know, punk and metal you know, before I realized there was a the subgenre of hardcore. You know, when I was twelve or thirteen years old, and I don't know that there was like, you know, some specific like moment in my life that it occurred to me to to start getting into that, other than maybe I think really one of my one of my good friends, Jason, gave me like a Dead Milkman record or gave me a Negative Approach record or you know gave me. A Slayer record or something, and and <clears throat> I actually had a friend of mine, Chris Bledsoe, who was way into metal, deep into to metal, and, and um, he was aware of like the metal, like fringe connection to punk and hardcore, you know, in in the mid '80s, even though he wasn't deep into that. And while I like the metal stuff, that the that that fringe stuff that was like part of that world seemed way more interesting to me. And uh, I just connected with it from, you know, from day one, you know, and then, you know, you put early Run DMC or early Beastie Boys in, into that mix as well. And, you know, it, it made for stuff that, that I seemed to connect with one way or the other, you know, and in terms of my... My dad did have a role in that stuff, I think, not because he was into, <coughs> you know, any of this kind of music, listen to, you know, like, you know, more like, um, I want to say like ornery rock and roll, like he loved the Stones, he loved Chuck Berry, and he liked that old country. <coughs> and, you know, there was just a spirit of my dad never really kind of took to being in a box about anything and, um, you know, he, me and my brother still say to this day, you know, nothing was fun with my father unless one of us got hurt and not because he was trying to hurt us, (laughs) but because we had to go so hard that it eventually got to that point accidentally. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, I always looked for things that were just, like, a little more extreme than what was, like, obviously in front of me.
0: Now, at the stage where you were passed on that record, were you attending large concerts yet? Or were you even, like, live music? Like, where do you think the first live music connection for you was?
1: I didn't go to any big concerts. Like until I was like in the music industry. Oh you know? wow, I never I I didn't go to arena concerts when I was a kid. I I would go to bars with my dad and listen to blues bands or outlaw wow. country bands or or cover bands. Um so I always liked being in a little bit more of like a non-obvious, more seedy environment and um you know the first, you know, punk show that I went to was like 86 or 87 at the truck to see, uh, the dead milkman with ruin and, um, Lux. And, uh, I forget who, and, and, um, oh man. Um, I'll think of it in a minute, but that was the first time I went to like a show. It was like more in our world. And that just, it blew me away. Like after that, you know, I was never interested in going to see Pink Floyd at like, you know, at at the Spectrum or something. I was never interested in going to see, you know, the other shows that people in middle school or high school were interested in. I only wanted to go to punk shows. You know, I was 13 or 14 years old then. Now, Probably 14 know, or 15 years old at that point. Now,
0: I know that you're from just outside the city of Philadelphia, So were you going with a crop of people or were you just going with your brother? What was the first like group of your friends that were heading down to the city or wherever for these shows?
1: I I had a couple of friends in my school that were into it. Um, And we would go, we would, you know, we would take the train to Philly to walk around South street and we'd find out about the shows and the flyers and, you know, and then we would just start going to the shows and during that same era, you know, I was walking around my suburban neighborhood with a, you know, a mohawk, you know, a fan mohawk, looking ridiculous in in suburbia, and uh, you know, a car pulls up next to me, and it's Sean Judge and Matt from Dare to Defy, wow. who lived in the next town over for me, and uh, for years those guys were my bigger brothers. You know, they were the first ones to take me to City Gardens, and those guys really accelerated how deep I got into uh, to hardcore music um, past like the stuff that you would just find out on, on the fringe, you know, they were the first ones to take me, you know, to like VFW halls, YMCA shows in Philly, you know, when it was like, when, 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 when like the Nazi culture was starting to infiltrate, uh, you know, Philly shows back in, in the early nineties or late eighties or whenever it was. And you know, how crazy that, that stuff was the graffiti culture and a bunch of other things that were going on. So those guys definitely helped me get into that. And they were, they were probably four or five years older than me at that time, still teenagers, but, but, but older than us. Now for people,
0: you are now one someone touching on a really early aspect of Philadelphia hardcore do you, you were did you were you go into Pizzazz? Were you I know you said City Gardens? Were you going to Unisound? Were you going up to the airport music hall at that time when it would like Wipe I know all, those all when, those? Yeah, so you hit all of them. Um couple things that um resonates what you just said, um, was but I was like in single digits as a child. So when I, I met Sean Money's brother and he was like, Oh yeah, my, my brother's in brick house and they had a seven called Frankfurt, it was amazing to hear that there was a culture that already existed in our neighborhood. That we were yeah. just too young to even see that.
1: Yeah, well, there was there was three different Club Pizzazzes, and I went to two of the three. The first one I never went to. The first one is where, like, that Warzone show happened, and, I mean, a bunch of other great shows. Um The second one was... The third one kind of, like, tailed off a little bit. There were still some good shows there. I saw Burn and Super Touch there, and saw Swizz there, and saw some other shows there, but... The the one in between the two, there were some really great shows there. I saw the Pagan Babies like way in the prime when when they owned Philly there, uh, and a few other shows there. And you know, in the third one, it's you talk about like blowing your mind. Like later on, blows my mind to this day that John lives at the one at the one spot that <laughs> totally out of my uh, th- throws me off. I think at the second one also, and I forget because. It was like a moving target for a little while. They would open up up his ass and then we could shut down. But at one point, um, you know, there was one, uh, somewhere in, in Northeast, um, Frankfurt area, I believe, cause I'm pretty sure it was near the L and, um, this band from Minneapolis played. I forget who they were. And some, that was the first time I was at a show where, you know, someone was getting shot at, you know what I mean? And people were <laughs> well, getting the stabbed <laughs> and Yeah. And speaking of Frankfurt, you know, and talking about you know those early days of like when like the Nazi stuff started to show up, that was that YWCA was was in. Well, I'm pretty sure that was in Frankfurt. It was a long. time ago. it was at, it was, at, it was
0: at Irish Street and Leaper, It was uh. Okay. We also, yeah, I know
1: exactly. I grew up
0: five blocks from there too. We had a we had our own little show in '96 there. Yeah, that's a we. Uh, what now? I'm sorry for cutting you off. Now, what are you going to say about the show? No, no.
1: No, that was just, it was a, that was a, that place was like a, man, it's like vividly etched in my brain because I was still, you know, I, was, I wasn't even 16 years old there. And, you know, I think that was like Sick of It All's first show in Philly. That was, you know, Killing Time's, you know, first show, but when they were still Raw Deal and like the 11th hour of them, you know, being Raw Deal and saw Fang there and, um, you know. Arrested Officers did, was on that show? they probably were on that show yeah <laughs> i saw them more than once yeah easy. Enough. i actually lived with jimmy for a little while i don't like i don't like to talk about that probably shouldn't talk about that but yeah
0: no I, I mean a part of our culture and and our culture meaning this area and richie crutch spoke on it on his episode you know we were juxtaposed in areas where people that you may have grown up with were like full blown nazi skinheads and if we had the numbers, well, we're fucking you up. If you had the numbers, well, we're going to probably get our ass kicked that time. But this part of Pennsylvania and South Jersey, we were on a front line of this stuff. Now, would you say, because you traveled beyond that, would you say that this area, even at that time, was... uh, Because you mentioned the beginning of Nazis. you think that this area was where it was, like, the most amount of Nazis?
1: South Jersey. I, you know what? I it was happening in new york too but it was a, it was a different kind of subculture it was like more about the statement of just being an outlier and being outrageous and i don't you know i'm sure there was some true racism in that but i'm not actually sure if that was like the same thing as south jersey and pennsylvania and delaware and maryland where you start getting into some real like white boy hate you know, so um, Yeah, I think it was, too, it was Turned up in this area for sure And and if you would go to shows You know In Connecticut and Boston and At least in Meyer, I, I don't remember That being as much of like an epidemic As it was You know, from here You know, and when I say here I mean Jer- South Jersey PA, Delaware, Maryland You know, DC even a little bit You know
0: now I know um, in speaking about Delaware and Maryland, there's so many of like what I like our core, my old heads, like your brothers coming, like, you know, came from hardcore. So I'm like, you know, hard Carl, Darren weather, uh, Walters. Like there's so many guys that were just outside of Philadelphia that without their impact, never would I don't know what Philadelphia hardcore would have been what it was, even though, you know, technically you guys didn't grow up in the city. And I always found it interesting that, Later on in life, I was like learning, like you know, like oh my god, none of these guys grew up in the city, but you guys are all fucking maniacs in your own rights. And I think my generation just took a cue from you guys and like a, we're not putting up with this shit. We're not going to deal with the Nazis either.
1: Yeah,
0: and and it makes sense that you guys were at a, as teens walking into this, and just like us, we were teens walking into it.
1: Well, you know what I loved about that era of of my life and that era of punk rock and hardcore. And even when we were going to metal shows is like the friends that I made then that I still have now, like we didn't grow up near each other. You know, we, we found each other at shows and, and became legitimately like brothers, like family. Um, And a lot of those relationships, you know, carry on till today. And, you know, and I don't think this is like this for everybody. We talk about, you know, a bunch of like, you know, and there's plenty of, people in that circle that were also either from Philly or living in Philly legitimately but a lot of us were like suburban they would come from southern suburbs and northern suburbs the western eastern blah 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 all that stuff once I found out about the city and once I really started spending time here you know I never left I mean it was like it it, it became like the pulse of it the the speed of it the the action of it it all. Became as infectious as 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 the music in general, you know.
0: No, I think um, that's a that's a huge aspect of Philadelphia hardcore. Is that if we relied solely on people who were born and raised here, there really much there really wouldn't be much of a scene. It's actually been people who were drawn to the music and then came to the city and then made the city their own. Whether it was yeah. Sean Agnew, every I mean, like every generation, even to now, the, the kids from the suburbs are the ones now carrying Philly hardcore. So I think it's a it's a great legacy that we have. Going into your shows where you start actually playing in a band, were you playing in a band before you started promoting or they kind of go hand in hand? Which came first?
1: I think they came hand in hand and I didn't know that there was a difference, I think, when it was happening. It's like when you're in a band young like that, like you got like a couple of the guys in the band that are actually like relatively good musicians, at least for what we were trying to do and for our ages and for how long year we were in it. And then you have, you know, a couple of guys in the band that are like, you know, they're the networkers. They're kind of making the, you know, like they're making the connections. You know, they're the ones that are like, you know, calling this other band, can we put together a show or calling you know the spot to see if you can get on on a show as an opening band or whatever and um i was probably more on that side of it you know that's why eventually they made me the singer of Throne of corruption rather than the bass player because i really wasn't that great of a bass player or a guitar player for the five minutes i tried to be the guitar player um you know but i always had like the ability to be comfortable talking to people and you know understanding what people were looking for and what the need was and trying to fulfill that need and, 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 make a good relationship out of opportunities, you know? What was your, what was your
0: first show that you can, that you can say, okay, I fully booked this and I, and I went into this saying, I'm booking this show.
1: <laughs> I feel like this is a weird setup. Uh, that's, it was, uh, man. It was Turning Point. Um, Man, there were some awesome bands on that show. It was 1987. I could almost see the flyer in my brain. Um, I can't remember all the bands on the show off the top of my head. Should have rehearsed some of this stuff before the call. But it was 1987. It was in my hometown of Kennett Square at the YMCA. And, uh, you know, it was... Once the show started, like... (laughs) <laughs> and people were you know dancing and stage diving and like you know the ymca almost pulled the plug on it and uh we had to get like the like everyone there to like chill out a little bit my my dad was like helping me with the show i was 14 or 15 years old and we had hundreds of people at this show i mean it was like for a show at in that like era anywhere you would go was as you know, there was as many people at that show as you would hope for as a show. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty fun. And that was the first one.
0: I think that a lot of people would love the idea of just seeing a show like Turning Point in the middle of a nowhere at a hall. And uh, I, I always say that with our area specifically, we had the small clubs. We had the big club, obviously, but there was something special about them VFWs just right outside of town. You know, that extra little something else that was like, sure, I mean, it ain't the truck, it's not the church, but there was always something different, like an an, an extra little bit of lawlessness, as you touched on, because there kind of wasn't that like staged amount of bouncers, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of made people extra feel a little lawless. So I'm glad that even back then, that's how it felt.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, it was like a show for us, done by us, you know, and I don't mean that one show. I mean, that just so many shows in general. I mean, unfortunately, that was the last show I did there um, and was the last show I'd done for a while because we got more serious about playing shows and supporting shows on that side of it. Um, But unfortunately, that place wasn't going to get their head around the lawlessness that was going on at that show. But But that type of show, that kind of spirit, that kind of like you know, there's nobody really here to, you know, police this and we're going to police ourselves and it's going to be cool and awesome. That was, that's what it was all about back then. You know, you talk about, you know, like the unison, you mentioned that, like, you know, there, there was cheesy parts about that era that we can all like laugh about people that lived through that or whatever and city gardens as well, less cheesy, but like, those places were our places man Like you know the, Those you know the, the, those, there, there can't ever be Places like that again because they 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 were about Supporting what the scene was And what The energy of that kind of a show Would bring to it you know
0: Now even Back then would you say That the smaller clubs and the Off uh, the main strip kind of VFW shows. Did that bring a different crowd than some of the club shows you guys were going to? Because I know that's how it felt in the late yeah. '90s. Was that if you went to the truck, they had that crowd, but the church and the VFWs was more like the actual hardcore kids. Was it the same that in, in your time frame?
1: It's hard to say because you know, I mean, like my first impressions of that was it was all just so crazy, right? Like going to that that first track show or the dead milkman with the headliner at the time to a 15 year old, that seemed like the craziest thing i would ever seen, you know, and it didn't seem all that, seem all that policed, you know, um, I feel like the heavy handedness of the bounces that existed pretty, pretty heavy at city garden gardens, but that had its own attitude about it too. Like it wasn't, it was like being policed at, at our level, For the sake of it being what it was versus like it feeling like it was an outside force, if that makes any sense. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's yeah. I I don't even know if if I remember the question at this point, other than I, that also for a lot, for many years, it all seemed crazy because like the, if there was enough people at the show, the energy of the show was overpowering, the forces that were trying to control the show, anyway, I and mean, that was that was the first ten years of going the hardcore shows for me. You know, was making sure that that was the case.
0: No, I, I um again, I know that feeling. We, you know, whether it was us on L trains or us in that packed truck, and you know, they, what do they have? Twelve hundred people, and you have ten bouncers. How much, yeah. can, how much can 10 people do? And like, you know, with the truck, the light would always come on when shit really hit the fan, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, they're turning the light on, on us, but the shit never stopped. You know, now what was the drive for you to kind of go beyond just like, uh, I'd say like the grassroots level, like what was your first inclination? Cause I know eventually you would do some stuff at revival, but what was the first light bulb that went off and kind of sparked you to be like, Hey, I think I could do this at a different level than what I've tried.
1: Um, I don't know, because, well, I do know, um, the difference maker really, uh, was my first year of going to college, you know, um, I was living in Philadelphia, I was going to Drexel University, I was going for economics, I just had a kid, I was 18 years old, and I'm sitting in these stupid fucking classes, I'm saying to myself, I'll never make it, like I have zero interest in being in a culture that feels like what this feels like, you know? And, and um, I basically, after that first year I made a decision that I was going to quit going to that kind of school. And, you know, I had a, you know, literally a couple of hundred dollars in a savings account that we had gotten through my son's baby shower that I was like, I'm just going to start promoting shows and get into this and uh it wasn't revival it was it a place called club vampire or vampire club or whatever it was it was like 26 in market or something like that it was, it, it, where right know, next to where all like the triple shops X, yeah yeah porn shops used to be yeah before you know? they
0: tore it all down i know because i know the building because someone actually mentioned the vampire club but i didn't realize that you were booking even back then there so what was that like yeah. to kind of what was that like for you knowing that you were kind of putting things on the line and striking out? Did you feel oh, you know what?
1: I just made a decision that like, I didn't know that I was going to survive or fail in life regardless. And if I was going to survive, it was going to be based off of the shit that I already knew and that I already loved and I could trust myself with. And, you know, I knew that the other path was just, was not a, fa- uh, a path for me. And, you know, there's something about when you got other people in your life depending on you, and you got to make sure shit goes well. Um, that was a driver for me. You know, I mean, having having a you know wife and a kid, and still being a teenager, you know, your mind gets set right pretty quickly unless unless you're focused on making sure it doesn't. Well, mine, I, I had a drive about it. You know, and and um, you know, I, I trusted. I trusted like punk culture I trusted hardcore I trusted being part of that as like you know this is this is my only way out because this is the only thing that really you know res- you know makes sense to me and and you know it almost sounds ridiculous to say that now, but that, I'm telling you that's that was the way I felt then and it is a driving force still now.
0: No, you're not the first person who said that on the show as well. I feel like when you put all your chips onto a certain thing and you have that kind of drive and commitment, you're going to make it work one way or the other and you're going to find the way. So <clears throat> when you were when you were getting into this what was the foot in the door did you know the people at the club or did you just kind of know they were going to let you do a show like how did you really get that in a club setting how did you get that first I don't
1: even I don't even remember how we even realized that place was was sitting there because it was dormant yeah. um i think you know Philly was a different place then you know it's like it all all like this build up that's there in all these neighborhoods it was just like you know any neighborhood you go to is like shit was like broken down and fucked up and unsafe and you almost and we love going to those shows in those places right so you go to a a new neighborhood you would like take notice to what those places were that were just sitting there like could a show happen there you know that seems like a, a fun place to have a show and I figured out how to contact these people and um they let us in there and We only had a few shows while that was like the moment that I was like, this is what I'm doing. That wasn't what stuck. Um, I ended up going to art school because there was a music thing there. And while that still wasn't like um, really wasn't necessarily any more interested in being in school there than I was the other place, at least there was something I could attach myself there. And, um, at one point a manager came through to talk to students or whatever. And he, he ran the fan club for anthrax and man, and, and, managed the cro And, uh, I just made a decision right then I'm going to get the job working for this dude. And then I really never looked back. I started a, I worked for them for a while and I started a booking agency out of that. And all that kind of led to where I'm at now. And that was all within like a year of those early vampire shows.
0: Did you just walk up to him and say, Hey, I'm working for you. Like, did you like,
1: I I basically did do that, which, you know, made like maybe a small impression, but then it was like the unrelenting, like, no, seriously, this is what we're doing that I followed up with. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't even ever, I never even put this together, but um, there's people in my life that have come along since that have been that person to me and there's always like a fine line between doing that the right way and being annoying right and anytime someone does it the right way and i can't even describe what that what that means but anytime someone does that the right way i make sure i put them under my wig or i bring them into my fold and we I figure out what they're about and I see how we can try and do stuff together cuz I that you know that's me that, that's who I was when at that point in my life you know
0: now being attached to those folks and getting uh was a rave booking right you started rave booking then or was there something before mm-hmm. rave booking
1: no was I had no no I had a company called All Access Agency um that was like 94 okay and, and I did and I did that for a number of years before I went to a company called artist and audience. And then it wasn't until after I left artist and audience and started strong management with Vaughn and Kenny, the, the three of us started raid booking. So that okay. was, that was much later. That was late nineties, probably. Raid booking. So,
0: so the question I would have, or I was, I was setting up was because you had the connection to the manager, were they the ones that laid out like basically what you and I would consider like the rules of the game? There's managers, there's aid, there's bands that are, uh, booked by agents. There's club, like, how did you get your, um, no. in the game?
1: I, I, Not I all made up all, all straight made up because, because while these guys were awesome, they managed the Chrome eggs. Um, and they really liked me and they took a liking to me and they supported me and they pushed me out there to do my thing. They shouldn't have been managing the Chrome Mags, and that was the worst version of the Chrome Mags that ever existed. Um, that was the Harley of the, play, the flute was... oh, version shit. of, yeah, that was like the hippie version of the Chrome Mags. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, so basically, they just were, and, and, and that was a mess from the, from the get go. Like, it never, you know, that never really went anywhere. Like, it got me in the door with these guys but it didn't go anywhere with the chrome Like I failed like pretty quickly after that, but these guys just let me do my thing. And I was friends with, you know, call from killing time. I was friends with Dave from vision and I was friends, you know, with this person and that person. And, you know, because they gave me a job and didn't now have that much to, for me to do because they, they weren't managing the chrome eggs anymore anymore. They just got a, let me sit at a desk and do whatever the hell i wanted and i just started booking tours for some of these bands until i figured out how to book tours for some of these bands and it's funny this whole thing man when i think about it like money was like never a motivation for any of this from day one from the second like i was like i'm not going to this school you know i'm gonna do this other thing you know it it was never about money. It was, it was possibly about survival, but it was mostly about just doing what the fuck I wanted to do and trying to have some quality of life from doing it because, you know, I didn't know at that point you could make a a living doing anything. I'd never been put in a position where I had to, you know, make a living. So money never motivated me. What, what always motivated, motivated me was being real to people and having good relationships and when I said I was going to do something to do it, and that would always, re- you know, yield a great result with the people that I was dealing with, which would always up open up new relationships, you know. So those early tours that I booked for Killing Time and Vision that I didn't know anything about that opened up, you know, relationships and doors. The sheer terror, which opened up doors to life and agony, which opened up doors to typo negative which got me my first real job
0: when i think about our first um engagement what we would understand the book tours one of our friends that booked a tour was chris from Disforia, who we had on episode three and he basically had a notebook with a ton of promoters names that he had gleaned from either like other sources oh this is a guy to go to this is a guy to go to And then that's kind of became something was like passed down to us. And then we would add, Oh yeah, this guy, you can go to, was that the same thing? Like you knew who was doing shows in what cities and that's how you.
1: No, I didn't even know that that at that point, man. I honestly didn't even know that I figured that out, you know, a year into it or six months into it or whatever. But the one thing that I got from these guys besides a phone and a desk is they had a Polestar directory that just had like, all the clubs everywhere, not the punk clubs, just like any like club. And I didn't know, all I knew is that you had to get from, you know, New York to Florida and back. That's it. Right. So I would just cold call every club in North Carolina until I got a show. And then, you know, by the time I had done that two or three times, people thought of me as a booking agent because I would booked a couple of tours. And by the time I'd done that three or four times, I started to figure out, oh, there's actually clubs that cater directly to what we're doing here. You
0: know, dude, that's incredible. That is absolutely yeah. incredible.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So, would you say that the first band that what was the, the first band that you had to sell yourself to? Who was that? Was it Life Agony know, or was it Sheer? Like, who was the first I, band like I, that? Someone I, didn't come I, to I, you and say, "Hey, can you book us?"
1: It probably was. It was probably Sheer Terror through Ken Creedy. That's probably. How, how that happened Because like, she, like Vision and Killing Time I really credit both of those bands As like giving me My real start if there was one You know like And none of us knew we were doing anything professional I knew that I didn't want to go to like A quote unquote real job And They didn't know that they were trying To be professional bands They just wanted to go on a three week summer Vacation and go on tour. And I would book those tours and I would do a good enough job. And the Killing Time guys, you know, being New York people, were affiliated with the Lamour scene. And like the Lamore scene at that time was definitely like the hub for getting, you know, to like the next level of being like pros. You know, that's where Life of Agony and Biohazard and, 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 you know, Typo and a bunch of other bands. All came out of, and sheer terror was in that camp at that time, or at least I'm pretty sure that's how it went down and um you know i I was able to start booking sheer terror a little bit They were a, a couple of notches like uh more like commercially at that time, maybe a couple of notches like beyond they were trying to be like a full time band whereas killing time never really tried to do that right so like I was booking sheer terror for the sake of like, we're all giving this a shot. And, uh, and Madball as well. Madball was in that mix as, as well. I'd go way back with those guys and, and still work with them now. Um, but I did a good enough job with sheer terror. You know, we got you know, we're lucky enough through their relationships, not mine, uh, to get like some ranzo tours and, you know, we we're doing real shit. And, um, Ken wasn't sure what he was going to do with life of agony or type O. And he just let me kind of book them while he figured out what he was going to really do with it. And I just hustled my ass off. We did a, a, a pretty good job for them. And, um, Ken was loyal to me. He, uh, he let me stick it out. And when type O really started to get big, he let me flip that into an actual job for me rather than taking them to somebody else.
0: Man, that's incredible. I think a lot of people in music sometimes and I've seen it happen, even just with smaller hardcore bands, they see something that's going to be a wellspring for themselves. And they just cut ties with anybody around them to say, Hey, this is my gold nugget. Fuck you. So That's awesome. He did that. Now I've yeah. always, a, I've, always a tribute, yeah, it- I've always attributed something to you and I, I need you to either debunk this or validate this. Did you have a hand in this specific show? It was Christian death, typo, negative, Shelter and Rupert Speed, and Christian Death fell off of it, but it was at the truck.
1: Yes. That I love was a, a show like that. It doesn't make any fucking sense.
0: See, uh, for those listening, one of the greatest aspects of Tim Bohr is his as he, and he actually, you broke it down perfectly by speaking about your father, and the way that he had such an amalgamation of, of music interests. Tim would book the show that you'd be like, what the fuck? And the first, what the fuck? I mean, I'm literally... A freshman in high school, and we go to see Typo Negative and Shelter At the Trocadero, it's Harry Krishnas and Goths, and Shelter had to Stop the set and say, hey, we're going to show You guys how to stage dive, because the Hardcore kids were literally dive-bombing on Goth kids' heads, and I've always thought that you were the one who booked that show And I was like, oh, Tim booked that show Because I got to know you later on, and I know that you booked Other crazy shows we'll get into But I always love that you put that crazy show Together.
1: Yeah, man, that Comes from, like, like that we were punk kids that would go to metal shows because the metal shows always had way more people at them. The fights were more insane. There was way more stage diving because there was way more people at the front of the stage. And we like, we loved going to metal shows, but we were, we were hardcore kids. We were metal. we were punk kids. And we, we love, so like, and I always loved metal because we always had so much fun at those shows. So Anytime I could put weird versions of bands together, because I didn't look at it like I just looked at it like, oh, you know, these are cool bands, other people would like them if they knew that they existed in the same way that I found about all these weird bands and I ended up thinking they were cool. So I always, you know, kind of and I also felt like, you know, if any of these bands want to get bigger, like other people need to figure out how to find out about them, and only other. Like people that are coming from like a bit of a outlier perspective are going to be the only other kind of people that are going to like these bands. So let's find all the outliers and put them together and see if we can have a fun party. And that was that's always been my approach to this shit, you know?
0: No, and it's it's evident and stuff that I'm gonna ask you uh coming up soon. So this is the early 90s, you're starting to represent bands, and something that I explained to people about what you did at this time was. There were so many metal people involved in the rock music and the big clubs that the hardcore bands not being represented had a very good chance of almost not getting treated well because they weren't represented. Is that true? At,
1: at what, what, I mean that, I think that that definitely was, was true But At what time are you asking about? Just
0: like right around that point, because I know like the metal clubs were where and, and you hear, and I, and I know I gleaned this information from uh fanzines interviews with bands at that time who were talking about before you know hardcore bands had like booking agents club owners were ripping hardcore bands off left and right as they were like bringing people in and i've yeah. always attested that you were one of the people that kind of stuck out and was like now we got to represent these hardcore bands and make sure they're getting what they're supposed to be getting
1: yeah i mean i definitely um i don't know how tactical that that is i think that was just I think that comes from the ethos of hardcore more than from me. Right. It's like, I was a hardcore kid working with hardcore bands. We're going to be treated right. Fuck you. That was, I mean, that's basically how all of us deal with every part of our lives. So I just transcended that, uh, I guess a bit of the style of how I was dealing with promoters for these bands. Um, and that, I don't know that I was more conscious about it than that. You know?
0: Yeah. You are just doing what was right is essentially what you're saying.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and the, here are some bands bringing people into your place. And we're gonna get a real deal, and you know, we're not gonna take more than we should, but we're gonna get what we're supposed to. That's for sure. You know. Now,
0: were you involved in the Downset Manball tour, or was that booked by someone else?
1: No, I, was, I mean, you know, I was telling. I mentioned another one, um, you know, because while I was talking about like the. The typo life of agony, sheer terror era. You know, Madball was a big part of that from the beginning for me. Earth Crisis and Strife were a big part of that early in, in their careers and early in my career. And yeah, Downset, Madball, um, you know, Hate Breed early on, all those bands, big part of, of me coming up for sure.
0: And so, for so many people that are listening to the show, it's interesting to hear the perspective of someone who was basically at the helm of making sure these bands, as they were setting the foundation were what now so many people in hardcore consider like the greats, you know, this is my favorite band. You had such a hands-on approach to making sure that these hardcore bands were treated professionally. There, there had to be a time where you had to start telling some bands like, I uh, you know I've got enough on my plate. Or were you were you still able to work and take on new bands once you start really ripping and rolling?
1: I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think and whatever my business was and whatever my business is, it's like you always got to kind of know that you always got to be on the lookout to be you know stepping up for the next thing and be involved with with cool shit when it presents itself that you like that you want to make a difference to but you got to balance that with like how much room is in my day to actually be able to make that difference that i want to make and that's always a challenge but i think that's a challenge i've always met fairly decent in in a fairly decent fashion and uh you know i think i'm more aware of it now but i think that was an instinct from the beginning
0: when you when you were working at this point, was there something like a live nation or AEG even back then or not really?
1: Nah, not really, man. There was a couple of like smaller companies that would maybe dip their toe into being in business in three or four different, you know, states, but there was no like mega machine. And that that definitely, you know, happened more like ten or twelve years into my career in those early years. You know, was a lot more human, frankly.
0: Um, can you give me a contrast and comparison to being able to work in that environment where it was more open season, independent promoters versus now when so much of this is corporate?
1: Well, I think the one defining difference, you know, and I don't even know if this is going to end up being like an like an answer that says anything bad about where we're at in the modern era but back then you had to go digging for the people that not only understood the culture but cared about the culture and could promote these bands properly and would let these bands come into these places and have shows that you know felt good for the audience right like you go into the wrong place with these shows you know the second they see You know some dancing. So the second they see some stage diving, it's game over, right? So you had to be a lot more like aware of is like this a place that this show is going to make sense? Is this promoter understand these bands? Can he find the people? You know, can she find the people in these in these places that are going to in in this city that is going to bring out the fans? And uh, that was a lot more like. You had to do a lot more digging to figure that out then than you do now because now, like, it's kind of one-size-fits-all for better or for worse. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. You know, it's like there's not, like, some place I'm going to put a show where they're going to be surprised about what the show is or they're not going to know how to go find the audience. Like, that that, that, problem has been generally solved.
0: That's really interesting. Actually,
1: it's less—it's less—it's less less fitting to what the spirit of any audience is because it is a catch-all, but it is a catch-all. If that makes sense.
0: um, What I was about to say is, I said to somebody in a different podcast I was on that there was a time when, as a band, you just didn't say yes because a promoter reached out to you because you need to know what like is this guy any good? Is this guy going to even? Is it going to be a good show? There was more of a buyer beware. So now in in the, and I feel like in the hardcore world, it's exactly what you said. Generally it is catch all. Everybody kind of knows the rules. And I know for people who may not know this at a certain point, and you can hear it in certain clips and shows, there was New York hardcore people on talk shows talking about moshing, talking about what New York hardcore matinees were at the time that Tim's talking about this. Like, it, we you know kids by today's standards have seen moshing since they first were exposed to this music but in the early 90s it was a bit of something that would like get on donahue like oh my god look at these kids are moshing or kicking people and so that's what well, Tim's ex- that's what you're explaining essentially is yeah that the clubs would even relate and want this kind of activity in their shows correct
1: yeah and look it, it's 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 good and bad. Like, I'm glad that, like, now, for the most part, bands can go, you know, get a deal that's square for who they are. It can be quantified and managed, and, and, and it's harder to rip people off now. And um, for the most part, you do a show and, like, you know, like, the band's going to be able to have the kind of show that they were expecting to have. The difference, though, is, and this is where things are lost, is it's pretty hard to find a show that really has, like, the lawlessness that really dumped gas on the fire for any of this shit to be cool in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, you you can't find that hard. Once in a while, Joe, you're good at finding those places. <laughs> and some other people are as well, but... It, they're hard to find and it's dying off. It's a, it's a dying breed.
0: Now we'll go back to what you were talking about through typo negative. You actually started having a full-time job is what you were speaking on. They, was it, they yeah. became your full-time job or were you hired on at a date? What was it?
1: Well, I mean, I was doing my own company as a full-time job, but I didn't really, I called it a company and I ran it like there was incoming money and outgoing money. And there was, Settlements and payouts and some very basic general concepts of running a business as a twenty-year-old, um, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, the first time somebody asked me, this type typo negative?" Brain in their own backline. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't under. I didn't know what that what that question was. Um, so that just gives you some idea of where I was and. I didn't realize that there was this whole bigger music business machine going on around me. When, when when I was booking Kill Switch, or I'm sorry, Kill Switch, type O when I was 20 years old, I was doing it out of my bedroom and it's all access agency. And I think I'm killing shit. And I'm booking bolt thrower and I'm booking prong and I'm booking like some cool shit. Right. But I don't I don't know what I'm doing. And type O is getting offers supporting Nine Inch Nails and Motley Crue and Queensryche and like these massive tours and they're selling all these records per week and, you know, I'm thinking I'm killing it. Somebody had to call me and say, hey, dude, you know, you're going to lose this band. Someone's going to literally steal them from you and why don't you come work here and we'll help you know, we'll be the one that gets the band, but you won't lose them. And we'll actually teach you how to actually survive in this business. And that was, that was my first job. That's how that happened. Who was the, who was the people? It was a company called Artist and audience.
0: And, uh, oh. do you have any, like, uh, who was the guy that called made that call to you?
1: It was a guy who owned the company. It was a guy named Alex coaching. And at the time, you know, just to give you like, um, uh, Like just how different that world was versus my world. You know, like I said, I'm booking those kinds of bands. I just mentioned, I think it might've been booking shelter at that point, or maybe I didn't start booking shelter until I was there or whatever. Um, but you know, I walk into this place and I've got, you know, typo and sheer terror and killing time, life of agony and bolt thrower and some other things in that world. And these guys are booking stadium shows for uh, Paul McCartney and Guns N' Roses and, you know, Nine Inch Nails was blowing up and Live was blowing up and Marilyn Manson was about to blow up and the Chemical Brothers were about to blow up. That was the world that I walked into from my world. So it was a very different, um, you know, culture than what I thought I was doing from my bedroom in North Philly.
0: So you went from a bedroom to an office room.
1: I went to from my bedroom in North Philly to a to an office in the Upper West Side of, of, of New York as a as a twenty year old kid, and and I'm psyched to still say this to this point because it's so ridiculous. Um, I walked onto that job as an agent as totally unqualified. I didn't have to be anyone's assistant. My sister at the time was probably 20 years older than me. He fucking hated me for it. And uh and I was like, "Yeah, this is what I do." And I had no fucking idea what I was doing, but they were all so, you know, so awesome to me and um I was really lucky to be in that situation, honestly.
0: I don't I actually see, I actually think that this is a lot similar to some other people and I wish I wish I had actually asked uh Vitalo this beforehand because i feel like a lot of agents now just kind of jump in and they have like a semblance of a picture like they don't have the full picture they have like only what they know and it's only through mistakes that they kind of get someone to kind of say hey here's the rest of the picture so i think it's great that you you went from literally a bedroom to this world do you find that it was hard for you to pick up or you immediately gravitated? Where the space was where you had to learn all this stuff
1: I was too young and dumb To like realize that I didn't That that there was something That I should not get You know what I mean like Again I was in like Still survival mode of like I gotta figure out this for my family I'm, ex- I'm doing Exactly what I set out to do two years Ago when I quit school I'm in music I'm booking the bands that I want to book And um, yeah, I was just psyched. So I never, I never considered like how out of my league I was, you know what I mean? As far as I was concerned, I was supposed to be there and, you know, I, I was comfortable not knowing what I didn't know and, and was just willing to take it on and not, I don't say that I didn't feel cocky about it then. And I don't say that from like, you know, a cocky perspective. Now I am more of a lucky perspective that, that I had that mindset about it was just, it was probably more dumb than it was anything else. If that makes sense.
0: No, it makes total sense. And I, and what's interesting is, is now thinking about the bands that you were booking, but you were still dealing with DIY promoters and such. Like later on, as you started working with like different things, like where you were, because you eventually would work for H2L, right. And you would start, you would still work with mad ball. And you would still have to sell these bands to like a Robbie red cheeks. But then you also, on the other hand, had phone calls about typo negative, probably dealing at a crazier level.
1: Well, the the coolest thing about that job for me is um I had I they left me alone to do what I wanted to do with the bands I wanted to book, right? Um, and then there was like you know, typo and life of agony. Um specifically early on like that, that were more integrated into the the rock business more than the rest of my my roster, if you will. But then on the flip side of that, I also had to book some of these bands that I didn't think that I necessarily related to or that I would have ever even known existed or that I would have ever cared about. I had to book some of those bands for the company. And that taught me how to do my job you know, and, um, you know, I never felt fake about that in terms of where my roots were with punk rock and hardcore metal, because I felt like I was learning to do like a craft. Like I felt like I was learning to be, um, you know, uh, like a good, like a great electrician or a great carpenter or whatever. It's like, you don't get to do the one thing you love every day and like that makes you great at the job you got to do some of the shit that you didn't think you liked and figure out how to be a master of that and then for me i fell in love with that and then that helped me transcend that experience and the shit that i was learning back to the, the bands i really had heart for to help all of them have a different level of significance and and growth
0: uh, do you have any bands that you want to mention from that? Or no, you don't want to you want to leave them bands out that you weren't really psyched on
1: booking? Um, it doesn't I mean, you know, I it wasn't that I wasn't psyched on booking them because what was you know, that you weren't hard they weren't from the hardcore? But like, I mean it I mean it I just, was like 90 shit that no one would even remember, like tripping daisy or the screaming cheetah wheelies or like you know, whatever. I mean, even Marilyn Manson, when we started booking Marilyn Manson, he was doing 120 people in Athens, Georgia. It was like And I'm like, this guy's a fucking weirdo. You know, it's a, you know, so I didn't, I I didn't, that didn't make any sense to me until like, till later on when we really started to be like, oh, this is what happens when you book a band and you have like a purpose in mind and then you blow them up, you know? Well, I think uh, I will tell you a funny story about like, during that era, I was so like bent on only like i booked those bands with a company and that was fine but the bands i only really wanted to get behind were my bands right so like the first time i got the first limp biscuit record i was like yeah fuck this record this sucks you know and that (laughs) that would have been a nice life-changing moment for me when i was too stuck on my shit you know
0: (laughs) that's great um as from a younger perspective i think uh Marilyn Manson, I saw for the first time at the TLA, and it was right after they had been on the TV show. Their big, the, the first like real big record was out. They weren't the Spooky Kids anymore, and they had Monster Voodoo Machine opening. And then in another completely Timboer only situation, I think like two years later, it was like Marilyn Manson and Clutch
1: at yeah. the factory. Yep, yep, no doubt. That was a tour I definitely <laughs> yeah. had my hands all over. <laughs> yeah without like, question, man. Because
0: I always say I'm like, I'm like, you know, Tim is the guy that would, would put Clutch on a Marilyn Manson tour.
1: <laughs> yeah, and like for the most part, that wasn't like a direct smash for either of those bands to be on tour with each other, but like it was the people in the middle that were paying attention And was like, Oh, this is really cool. And you know, I still am in business with clutch all these years later. And those tours, those tours that they at face value didn't belong on are the reason now that they have such a huge career. Cause they always they didn't go out there and worried about who hated them or didn't understand them or who didn't connect to them. They went out there and played for like the fans that were paying attention and would like them. And they always took that percentage, no matter how big or small of that crowd that they played for. They would always you know, take that, that percentage of the audience with them and began building their career that way. And I always love that shit, you know?
0: Another thing that I know that you've been, I don't know if lifelong, but, uh, you were very involved with, uh, Gwar at a very early stage too, correct?
1: I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that I've, I've been involved with the, with Guar in the sense that I've seen them play shows since I was 16 years old. Um, and I've been in business with them now, probably close to twenty years, give or take. But in the scope of Guar's legacy, goes it
0: goes, All right, it so goes you were... another
1: ten or fifteen years before that for me, you know. Oh, okay.
0: Um, so you're so you're working at this you're working at this established agency. You got the hardcore bands, and you're you're obviously working for Marilyn Manson, these other bands. What was the onus to start strong management with uh, Vaughn and Kenny?
1: Um. The company I was working for started to fall apart uh, for a variety of reasons one of the main people decided to go work for a different company and the guy that brought me in there that was the owner of the company decided he was kind of disenchanted with you know mainstream music business in his own right wanted to go run the business from upstate New York and like you know like you know in 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 the in Adirondacks or something and and, 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 and I just didn't see me taking on that life. And I was so at that point, I'd been living in New York for a number of years. And I was, you know, I was really in deep into being in, in, in New York hardcore. Like that's what I did with every free moment that I didn't have to serve my job and my family was, was going to shows in New York and being around everybody in New York hardcore. And, um, I wasn't going to go to upstate New York to be part of some you know, weird, you know, business. I wanted to fucking go do my shit. And so um, you know, I'd gotten to be pretty good friends with the H2O guys at that point. I've gotten to be really good friends with Vaughn, who was managing H2O at that point. And um, you know, Vaughn um was pretty early into figuring out the business side, but he was a super righteous guy and an easy guy to be around. And um, you know, he was ready to step out and do his own thing. And, and I had maybe a little more, he was, a, he was probably a lot smarter than me, but I had a little more music business experience. And we put those two things together with Kenny and we started that company. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun. We booked or we managed H2O and we managed Scarhead and we managed the Lords of Brooklyn and we managed Hapred and, um, you know we managed Murphy's Law um, I don't think any of us knew what any of those Things meant to manage these bands And I don't think that those bands necessarily Knew what it meant for us to manage them But we all did the best we could and we all Carved out something and we all You know developed some reputation Out of that and um, From that we started That booking agency we started Rave
0: I gotta ask Because this now may Fuck my whole world up uh I know that you and Vaughn guys had a really interesting hand with uh placing new metal bands that were i mean because there wasn 't that term new metal, but there was like the coal chambers the corns i don't know how much you guys specifically had a chance with those two bands, but I know that those kind of bands were starting to pop up on hardcore shows, and there was a show that was corn Sugar Ray, and Lords of Brooklyn at um the j c Dobbs yeah. And, now, and now you're saying that, I'm like, how much was that I t- don't. don't
1: that, th- nah, that wasn't us Though, like, frankly, I never really Got into, like, the new metal stuff I, I, you know, I'm not saying none of the Bands I worked with never fucked with that Like, for instance, Arnstein Millimeter I booked them for a long time and Burned for a long time and Um, Arnstein did Endless shows with With Korn and the Deftones Um, as it's sick of it all Back then, um well that's yeah, what I was getting that was, that, that was
0: that's like literally what I was getting to is like you guys were there seeing the juxtaposition kind of like there was no scene for the corns, the death tones. Right. They were side by side with the hardcore bands. And I always tell young kids, because right obviously over the last 10 years, it's a very weird thing to see a hardcore kid or a kid who says they're a hardcore kid in 2020 being like they put like the systems of a down and the corn and the tones over the sick of it all's and the man. But you're like, where the yeah. fuck is this? Cause when those bands were playing our shows, there wasn't that many actual fans for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was when those bands were all playing together, they were all trying to make like a space for themselves and trying to share each other's like community for lack of a better word to get somewhere. And you know, fortunately for The tones and Corn, that really worked And unfortunately for Sick of It All and Biohazard and Orange Nine Millimeter it Didn't work quite as well um, But I, you know, I mean That was just a moment in time And I I never thought that those Bands actually very fit well with Each other, you know I, I, you know My heart was always with like I'd, I'd much rather see Testament and Napalm Death Tour with AF and Sick of It All Than 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 corn, you know. I mean the Deftones I always loved. Um and I, I like corn. There's nothing wrong I'm not saying say anything about them. I just in terms of like a cultural fit. Um I like the I, I liked it when it was when it was more when Suicidal and Slayer were touring with those bands, you know?
0: No, I agree. I feel like the more aggressive bands mixed with our bands always felt better. And I mean I seen Deft Tones from the HMV to the Kyber. I seen them at such a small level. They were always a good live band, but it was always weird. Yeah seeing the juxtaposition of corn is sick of it all. So in the mid nineties going into the two thousands, I know that you were also dealing with metal and you were, and you actually touched just touch on it. The hardcore bands that weren't going to get to this next giant level, was it something that you had to see on the business perspective that some of these hardcore bands had kind of hit their mark? And how did you start swinging to the metal bands that you would, by the two thousands would be a big part of your, uh, your, your roster and such.
1: Um, I think it was a little bit of timing. I think it was a little bit of seeing an opportunity. Um, you know, when we started that company rave and we didn't, we didn't start it. That's, that's not genuine to say that company already existed and, and they were, trying to move on from being the face of the booking agency and doing the work and they made a deal with us for us to take on the name and we had a deal with them and and unfortunately the personalities involved with that didn't really work out but it was their company and Vaughn and Kenny and I were doing our best to run it but part of you know what that was was you know three guys that were deep into hardcore living in New York City Taking over, kind of like a, like a sludgy '90s, you know, um, like roster. You know, like they had awesome bands, but they had bands like Nashville Pussy and Neurosis and you know Napalm Death and you know bands that were 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 not so hardcore leaning. So we started to like, you know, put some of our stamp on what that roster looked like, you know, with, with, with hate or with H2O or with earth crisis and Madball and, you know, a bunch of those bands. And eventually we started to just make weird tours out of that. And at the same token, kind of like the first real wave of like European metal, um, Swedish death metal, um, you know, that kind of movement started to really make waves here, like early in flames, The Haunted, uh, Dark Tranquility, Demo Borger, um, Cradle Filth, in the first couple of years of their their, their lives. Like that, that stuff started to have um, like a buzz here. And I got a call from a guy named Karsten Otterbach, who was a German guy who managed most of those bands. And, um, we had a good couple of calls and a good, we we made a good friendship and it created a good relationship. And the next thing I know, um, we're representing literally every one of those bands that mattered here. And um, that's really how I started to get into that lane, you know, and, and then things from that relationship trepped in that, you know, that, you know, that didn't come through Carson, but, you know, King Diamond and Merciful Fate. We booked those for those bands for a while. and um, We just, for a long time, you could either deal with people who were culturally disconnected from metal um, and were just booking them for the money because those bands made money. Uh, they weren't booked carefully. They weren't booked with, with their interest in mind. They weren't booked in the venues that supported the kind of production that some of those bands wanted where you just dealt with sleazy people. And I think we, and there's a lot of people now that are a better alternative, but at the time we were like one of the few people that would deal with metal, that would treat it with respect and treat it like those bands cared. And so we became the go-to place for those bands for a long time.
0: What's incredible is uh, all of them bands, obviously were a big part of it was central media getting a lot more distribution here, but I remember at a certain point between like 98, 99, you had just as easily a chance to see someone wearing an inflamed shirt or like a at the gate shirt, as you would see someone wearing a manball shirt, because so much of hardcore had started to also pick up on that whole style and sound that I'm not surprised that you were representing the bands at that time. And yeah. um, now for me, just looking at it, there was obviously bands that were getting bigger and stayed in the big clubs. And then there were some bands that were getting smaller. How, how does it, how do you, as an agent deal with some of the bands that had like the flurry where they had their moment and you're like, look, we can't get you in the same place. Is that, it was a hard thing. That's kind of tell somebody, Hey, we got to play in a smaller room. Yeah.
1: It's awful. It's and, awful. Uh, it's awful. When you got to be the of bad, bad news.
0: But I mean, you've now seen the waves the bands that go up and bands that go down. Yeah. Would you say that Would you say because a lot of people And I I think it's I always say it's Aesthetics more than like Physically true that the Late 90s was a high A high water moment for hardcore In a professional sense
1: Yeah well I mean Definitely a bunch of those bands had You know a really good run A lot of those bands luckily Continued to be able to have that run Um What's the question exactly? Essentially, is is I mean, I
0: can remember at a certain point whether it was Earth Crisis, Sick of It All, Man Downset, Shelter, H2O. All these bands could headline at the truck and do really well, yep. but then like five or six years later, only four of them guys could. Yeah, so my yeah, question I is: love. Would your question is is like, would you say that the high water mark for that st- for that hardcore was the late nineties?
1: Yeah. You'd have okay. to, for
0: sure. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I know for you because at this point you've been booking shows for already booking shows and working with bands for ten years. As you roll into the two thousands, it seems like you were already kind of way wide open. Like you were, you weren't, you weren't like, "Hey, I'm only booking New York hardcore." You were now. This is your full ass career at this point.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, look, I think. For me, I put a lot of stake in that late '90s era of hardcore, and man, i I thought I thought one of those bands were going to have, and maybe this was the mistake in what we were all doing at that point. But we were all caught up in it. Uh, it wasn't just me; it was it was everybody. And I think everyone thought that well, one of these bands is going to have their Green Day or Rancid moment. You know what I mean? And um I don't think we ever overplayed those cards. We never, we never tried to make any of that stuff commercial. It just felt like we had so much energy about and momentum, and it just seemed like it was super fucking cool. And it was, it was we were all going to get lucky in, and, and it was going to work. And um, for whatever reason, it didn't. There was a couple of close calls, and you know, um, you know, trends trends run dry, so to speak. And then some bands, I think did start to overplay their hand because who likes to see that moment go away? They tried to maybe get a little, take a little, an extra step towards being, you know, too commercial and then it burned it all out. Um, and in the meantime, there was this other undercurrent of things that happened for me that wasn't really tactical, uh, but I definitely had my hand in it and was lucky for me. Is that We did merge some of like What was happening with that European metal What what was happening with hardcore I think I told you about this Like a week or so ago when we were talking about doing this podcast Like that Earth Crisis In Flames tour I, I still to this day Say like that is the reason That bands like Killswitch and Lamb of God Are as big as they are Because it merged Those two things into one genre and that became nah, doing, right. that, that became metalcore, right? And uh, I was a big part of that world, you know. Um, and you know, you know, I went from booking a lot of the, like those hardcore bands that I love, and a lot of those European metal bands I love to a lot of those like metalcore bands that I loved. And um, that 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 stuff ended up getting like bigger than all that stuff. And um, that's been fun to be involved with that.
0: What's funny is you actually picked up with how I just set that whole thing up. So as a fan, you know, I got to remember eighteen and nineteen ninety eight. You know, uh, I'm watching. Actually, it was ninety seven. No, no, no. It was ninety six. Uh, Lamb of God was still burning the priest, and we're in a big fight outside the Stalag thirteen at one of their sets. But by the time ninety nine two thousand rolls around. Now they're starting to be lamb of God, and every time I die is played at the um, kill time, and kill such a gauge will come and play the kill time. So what I was saying is very interesting because I know you're linear of this. As some of the bands from the '90s had kind of crested and started to burning out, these newer bands were in the hardcore spots.
1: Those bands were hardcore bands,
0: man. They, they were in, in the hardcore, spot.
1: deeply in in the scene for sure, and um,
0: like to the point where. Specifically, I remember uh, that Philadelphia shoot for Lamb of God. You know, here it is. It's fucking, it's Lamb of God. It's Fear Factory. It's Children of Bodom, which I think you were booking at the time. But yep. then you still had Throwdown as the opener. You know, yep. like, and that's that's another Tim Bore move. Like, oh well, yeah. here's the new, here's the new reign. Here's the new era. But I'm gonna throw out a lo- some love to Throwdown. But one of the craziest things about this show, and I tell everybody, is. Poor Throwdown having to open when Children of Bodom was like going to be like the biggest thing ever, and it was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's still to yeah. this day like, but that's that's who you are. You're the guy who's going to book Danzig, Lamb of God, a Gage, fuck with Throwdown. Like you always had your hand in the mixes, whether or not the bands were selling to a thousand tickets or five hundred tickets, you had your hand in both of those worlds because of how you were, uh, where you came from, and what you saw in hardcore, and then what you could do with metalcore.
1: Yeah, no doubt No no doubt, man
0: Now, it gets a little weird because, I mean, as you're growing Your bands are now starting to be on, like, the national stage And, you know, like, the, you know, Killswitch, especially Lamb of God Was it fun to start to see the bands Because I know you said, like, with Marilyn Manson That was with the other company You didn't stay with them, right? Right So, like, in the 2000s, you had your hands on some of, like, what is now Some of the biggest bands in American metal period yep so you were also taking on not only the european metal shit which i fucking love but you're also now dealing with the american metal bands because you're like hey we got a fucking home for you and uh was it weird because i know you said earlier you're dealing with prong you're dealing with Bolt thrower or were I you know, just kind of in the game
1: i don't know if it was weird it was fun you know because like i don't know like that like the earlier, like up until that point, all that hardcore stuff, that was my stuff. You know what I mean? Like the European metal stuff was stuff that I liked, the stuff that I could somewhat relate to, and it was stuff that I was able to make a big impact in and towards being helpful for. But it wasn't like my scene. You know what I mean? Like Lamb of God, Kill Switch, Unearth, Every Time I Die, those bands, they're, they're people like us. You know what I mean? To this day, those guys are all guys like we would you would have a talk with them about the same stuff we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I have. I know exactly. They're all the great dudes with that. Yeah. So like that was super rewarding to like be able to, you know, get a couple of bands over the hump and know that we still had (laughs) a long way to grow. And we were all going to be able to do this together for a while. Uh, super rewarding, and felt totally in step with everything else that had already happened up to that point. Where we got close on some things, and um, I didn't. It never felt weird. It felt right, and it felt 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 good, and it felt rewarding, and it felt like there was luck involved, but there was a lot of strategy and planning, and you know, tactical moves that we made to make sure it went that way you know, as a, as a collective, as a group.
0: Well, actually you just touched on my next thing is because I noticed, you know, sometimes they say the, uh, the children have to bear the sins of their fathers. And I I know that in the two thousands, with the benefit of the beginnings of what would be social media and the internet information was moving quicker and promotion was moving in a different speed. But also I believe people like you having seen some of the mistakes or things that you would have done differently, in the bands in the mid nineties, you had the opportunity to do differently because of you now knew. So you just kind of touched on that. Did you start getting, um, a different team or did you had to add more people as the internet came on? How did you work with the tactics to develop a bigger, like plan for these bands and just, Hey, here's a new record. Here's your tour.
1: Yeah, man, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Cause I do think like there was things earlier in my career in the nineties that like, It felt like we were doing everything right, but also I wasn't as old and I wasn't as old as I would become in the next few years and as experienced as I was in the next few years, right? So those other things happen, and then you're in maybe the same crossroads with a different situation a couple of years later. You know, you kind of subconsciously are just handling things differently because you know that that moment needs a little bit of a different kind of leadership than what it maybe needed before. You you aren't even necessarily aware of it. Maybe you're aware of it sometimes, maybe you're not. Other times it's just organic. Um, You know, but look, the the internet is like, you know, we grew up in an an, era where we lived on both sides of it and in the middle of wherever it is now, where you know, we're like one of the few, uh, age groups that like can really say it that way. You know what I'm saying? There's like the pre-internet and whatever kids are living with now, but the evolution of that and people that live inside of that evolution, that's who we are. And I don't, I don't even know that I was ever that conscious of other, other than it was occasionally a tool that we used. And then, there were other people who were way more keenly aware of it than I was that were using it as a definitive tool. It was, it was just another part of like just general evolution and growth for me. If that makes sense.
0: Well, I guess that kind of goes into what I'm saying now. I know a lot of our relationship has been, hey, let's just get on a call. Yeah, and I know that you're you and many of your, um, I would say your peers. Are still, let's just get on a call and hash this out. When did you start having to start look at what some of the younger people in the, whether um, that you were working with and how they were using the internet? How, how much of what those guys were doing did it have influence? And in you were you still the guy like, fuck this, I'll get on the call, I'll get this fucking hammered out.
1: I mean, I don't know. I think I send and receive as many emails as anybody else. I mean, they're by the hundreds daily. You know, I mean, I'm dealing with plenty of my business and plenty of my life, you know, you know, listening to music on Spotify or YouTube and finding out about music through the internet or doing business through emails. Cause it's fast, you know, you can just burn through shit and get it done, you know, but there isn't anybody that I'm doing meaningful business with that. I don't also need to get on the phone with them and, and have a, con- a conversation with them. Relationships are, are real to me. That's a big part of what got me to this point in my life. That's a big part of just how my heart and head are connected to each other. Um, A lot is lost in translation when you're not talking to people one-on-one. Minor misunderstandings can put big wedges between people. And um, (coughs) you know, I think at this point, one isn't you know, more important than the other. I think you got to do both, you know, as a a person that's, you know, my mid late forties at this point, like I, when I'm working with younger people, they're doing way less on the phone than I am. That worries me, but I don't know really whether or not that's just me being an old guy or whether or not that's a real fucking problem. I mean, that's going to be revealed later on. I I personally, I suspect it's a problem, you know, like get on the phone, deal with people, have relationships, get context, you know, get small details. That shit's important, you know, um, at least that's important for me and what I think is important.
0: No, actually, you again, it's great. It's great because we I think we already have so many conversations in life that. You already kind of read where I was going. I find in the same situations, the newer breed of humans, they want as least amount of actual information by telephone. They want to just kind of send it out in a text. And I hate to text when we're doing show stuff or fest stuff. And the emails, you lose context, and they're, and they're too brief. And I force people to get on the phone. Like I, I, like I was kidding around with Vitalo. I'm like, look, if we're going to work together, I'm not going to send you 42 emails about seven bands. You're going to get on the phone. We're going to say yes, no, yes, no. And knock it the fuck out And right. I, I find that the Exactly what you said is important And I learned a lot from you in that regard Of also ha- that I have to write emails back Because I went the other way I was like fuck an email And dealing with you and the people that work under you You're like dude you gotta write back Like you can't Like I had to learn the business language of the email <laughs> Through dealing with you Because I fucking just hated them <laughs> You know like I fucking yeah. hated emails But
1: I Well they're exhausting that's for sure
0: um, one of the things that I would like to touch on is just because it gives a perspective, and I think about it often is I mean, there's stormy. There's a handful of agents left from when you started, right? That are still doing with the bands, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. And would you say that what do you think the biggest reason why, just as bands move on, that people move on out of being booking agents?
1: This, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, you know, success rate, failure rate, being in the middle too long, being burned out. There's a lot of, lot of, a lot of sharks in this business. It gets tiresome to fucking wrestle sharks all the time. Um, you know, people get hot when they're in a moment and they, they don't figure out how to transcend uh, and grow and change and evolve. The, the the reasons are endless. Honestly, I don't think there's one reason. I mean, sometimes people leave because they've had too much success and they're like, "Fuck okay, it, I did everything I wanted to do." Um, so it's not always for the wrong for for a, a negative reason. People get out. Um, I don't know. It's that's a that's a pretty broad question, really.
0: Well, I guess it's more or less. You know, like the same thing. Like it's a weird, it's a weird thing for me because I'm not anywhere near a high level of a promoter. But I, I know about twelve, maybe fifteen people that have been booking in American Hardcore as long as I have at this point because so many people have just stopped. And yeah. it's a and it's a surreal reality for different reasons. So, um, obviously, uh, Stormy is someone we love to have on the show. And so, it's. Do you think that there's just something that. Specifically the old guard has Because I mean if you gotta think about this time frame There's so many people who have already kind of come Gone and burn out in that range Where you know there's only a few stalwarts left And then there's these up and comers
1: Yeah well I don't know I mean I think that's always going to be True you know you, you mentioned Stormy and you know I've said this To her many times but she's one of my heroes Because she, she's She's a queen She's, she's, a, she's a pros pro but she's also legitimately culturally connected to her shit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there ain't no faking it, you know? And she is one of the most extreme fighters for her artists that there are. And I think when you mix being that level of an elite badass with true connection to the culture, you're always going to be around as long as you want to be around, you know what I mean? And, You know, um, we talked a little bit about Kevin Lyman before this call. He is, he is one of those guys. Um, You know, there's, there are a lot of those, a lot of those people out there, man. Um, And a lot of the people that didn't make it, I'd venture to say they didn't make it for the right reasons. Like there's just a lot of bad people out there, man. They're out there, you know, they're trying to take from this stuff, not put something into it. You know I mean? I'm I'm saying this for myself, but I'd have to imagine when you start talking about people like Stormy or people, you know, of that ilk, the reason they're still going is because they never forgot that they got to bring value to what they're doing, you know? And when when you're bringing value to something, people want to keep you around because you're helpful, but you're also trustworthy in that regard. And, you know... For me, it brings meaning back to me Which makes me want to keep doing it So, it's a cool circle in that regard You know
0: Well, I absolutely think Especially if you're culturally connected The the thematic scenes within hardcore and punk Is a lot of those things that you're talking about We have strong relationships You know, this whole thing works on trust If I call you and say I'm going to do this for your band You know me You trust me that it's going to work out And we can walk away with this stuff. And I find that the people that couldn't do these kind of things, that's why they're not in the game. And I actually wanted to bring you to this next thing. So on another episode, which I don't think you listened to yet, we had Rich Hall. And he tells a quick short story about basically how Hellfest completely fucked up and messed up a head count. And I always ask him because he's, you know, Rich has been known to help out Hellfest. He's come and helped this hardcore. And he told a funny story about you're basically like yo you guys completely fucked this whole thing up and then you're like why the fuck is Rich Hall here what is he doing he like why is he in the fucking room <laughs> And Rich was kind of like, And Rich is like oh yeah Tim's pissed alright I want my money I'm getting the fuck out of here
1: <laughs> Yeah but I I I, I-, I- where are you well, going with that? Because I remember that I'll I couldn't you, I'll... tell you a single detail about it.
0: Well, the detail was that there was a specific thing regarding either Thursday or one of the bands where they had a head count added to the guarantee and they yeah. couldn't do they couldn't produce what they were counting by heads. But the broader question is, is that specifically, just kind of like show a moment where you're like in crisis, like, hey, fuck you mode. How many times do you think had you been less hands-on that people would have got away with ripping off Because they weren't trustworthy. And so can you elaborate on just how hands-on you're on and the reasons why? And maybe an example or so, like something that you had to learn early that made you be so fucking hands-on with everything?
1: Well, there's two things that that get into like a situation like that. And that's one situation, right? But. You know, when I walked into that first company that I worked for, Artist and Audience, you know, they were what they were. Their name of the company was Artist and Audience. They were about representing the artists for their audience. They didn't give a fuck about, you know, they wanted to have good relationships with promoters, but they they weren't on the promoter side. They were on the artist side. So they were always bringing in the question about the legitimacy of settlements, you know. Were the amount of tickets sold that you're reporting, you know, what, actually what the tickets, how many tickets were sold? Because until things got all digital in the way that they are now, it was a lot easier for promoters to um, hide some of the money. And it was done frequently, right? So there was a lot of practices. um by people who really understood the business that were put into place to manage that the best that they could, which I learned. But then you also put that in the mix with where I was coming from, from hardcore, which was like, you know, we're always not afraid of a fight. Right. So I brought that attitude to like the knowledge that I have of these things and I could put people in check pretty easily because I would, I would put things out there in a way where they know that I was serious, but I was already, but I would also show that I was smart enough to know what the fuck I was talking about. So that if you, if you couldn't match a counter claim to what I was putting out there, you were always going to get washed a hundred percent of the time. And, um, you know, that is a big part of the personality I've always carried and a big part of why these bands always liked having me around and why I'm trusted by them, is because I have, you know, that ability, I suppose.
0: That actually leads perfectly into some of the more modern stuff. How hard is it with such a corporate level and the W-9s and the taxing do you feel that they just created a different system to take money away from the bands with all the different things? Or do you think that it's kind of, because it's all on paper and it's all digital and all this stuff, that it's it's harder for them to hide
1: the money? The money gets hidden. Um, there's a lot of tricks that are out there. Everyone kind of plays the game now. Like, money is... Money is horse traded. Like we're going to give you a little more, so we can take a little more, and and everyone kind of falls in line. It that part of the business is is disappointing, but that's part of the business, right? And um, that's bigger than me, and um, the entities that are at play are are bigger than than most. Um, it's just a totally different business, man. And I'll tell you. A lot of it stems from, you know, like when the insurance stuff started to change, honestly. And I I can't quantify exactly what I'm trying to say here, but things got more locked down as more people would get hurt having the kind of fun that we all wish we could still have at shows. But those people would end up suing, which would put a greater pressure on promoters to you know control the environment which changed the game completely and then when live nation and AG took over you know the business it kind of kind of went from because it got in corporate through insurance in my opinion it was an easy jump to make the business more of a math equation than a music business and that's where
0: we're at. You actually touched exactly. I love that you keep going where I'm trying to go. So I got a couple of short little ones that you can kind of like elaborate because I wouldn't ask this of any person probably besides you or Stormy or the late Brian Dilworth, because I think that you probably are the most knowledgeable about this. In your career and your experience, explain the merch cut, why it happens, because obviously it's something that I mean even I've seen even Josta Recently on Twitter was talking about the merch cut Like how did that get Was that in before you showed up or As it like explain that whole thing And your thoughts on it
1: Well I'm not Against the personally I'm not against the merch cut in a Broad idea um, I think I think Sometimes people try to take too much of a merch cut But you know if I want to sell apples um in a storefront, I gotta pay rent. You know what I mean, so the promoter says you're selling your goods in my place, I want you to pay rent. you know we can argue a lot of ways about that, but if you just put it at face value, that's why it exists um, and I think you know paying for. Your place to make money, that's generally pretty American, in my opinion. Um, But it's a matter of how much you try to tax somebody for that. Like, there's a limit of what's fair is fair. And um, you want to make a claim to sell your goods in my place? Okay. Don't overcharge for it, motherfucker. Don't do that, you know? Um, In a best-case scenario, don't charge me at all, you know? But if you're going to charge me, at least be square about it. and. I don't think that often is tilted completely in the right way. Um, you know, the flip side is, and I don't want to advocate too much for the promoter side of this because that's not really where I advocate. <laughs> but um, you know, places stay in business because they have merch items, and they have they they get a piece of the merch because they get the bar, because they get a little piece of the ticketing. They're in business because of that. They don't. If I'm doing my job as effectively as possible. They're not always making money because they sold enough tickets. The band's making that money. So they're staying in business by taking some of that other piece. And that's that's part of the ecosystem. That's a great idea. I knew that you could lay it out
0: that way. And, I, and I, it's obviously something that as younger bands and hardcore are starting to become normalized to the more music industry kind of venues – it's it pops up more often than not now than say 10 years ago because the younger bands have Twitter so they can go to it and complain. And so in that where you said you said something pretty specific, outline what your job outline what your job is. If you could if you could give me like what your job is you said, if I do my job, and it's obviously not just confirm the show at a specific amount, but explain what your job is as you see it in twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Minus the, COVID. the job,
0: minus the COVID, obviously.
1: Yeah, no, there's a lot of dynamics to it. I mean, you know, we got to put the routings together. We've got to set the market value, meaning what are the size places we should be playing? What are the, what are the ticket prices that are appropriate for where the band is at at that point? What what what's going to feel okay to fans? Um, you know, capacity, ticket price. The math on that for the guarantee Lining up City to city, keeping In mind safe drives Factoring in the merch rate Um, you know Uh, approving Show costs and expenses So, you know Costs don't have too much Overinflation or or in a perfect scenario Any inflation, uh, which Is hard to do, um You know, um just being mindful of like what percentage of the gross a band should be getting based on what their strength in the situation is. Uh, making sure that if they overperform on the show, that they get a, a square piece of that pie uh, on the backside of it and that that money just doesn't go totally into the wrong hands. Issuing contracts, uh, taking deposits, making sure... You know, we get contracts back and the things haven't been changed so that when bands show up to the shows that, um, you know, a different story isn't being told to them. Stuff like that doesn't really go on that much anymore. Um, It's really just about, you know, getting the best deal you can um, and making sure that artists are protected for what is rightfully theirs as they go into these places city to city. and that, you know, that that there's no wild surprises. That's my job.
0: You mentioned really um, early on in your career that you had used Polestar, the magazine, and that kind of led you to the venues. How much does that kind of computation and Polestar involve now? Or is there new metrics and new systems that help kind of give you an aid in
1: understanding what to do in your job? There, there's still a directory that's out there if you want to you know who. I forget who books that room. I can I can go look that up, right? You know, I can I, I can go look at, you know, who books this place in New Haven, Connecticut or whatever and then give me the name and the email address and the phone number. Most of the time, 99% of the time that's already in the directory of the stuff that we already have because we've been doing this shit for so long. Um, but that already exists. You know, Polestar is m- more is as meaningful now as a as a news resource, um, and a checks and balances system for what's happening in the business than they were then. They were more of a directory based thing. You could get your management directory and your agency directory and your booking booking agency directory. Um, you know that that that's what it was mostly then. I would say it's a lower percentage of that now, and more of a news thing billboard is a big directory for the upper echelon of the business and you know look i think a a lot of uh, you know there's just a ton of news sources on the internet that you can find out about new music you can find out about what moves are being made you know you stuff that's specifically you know like you know curated towards different cultures whether it's you know, hardcore or whether it's metal or whether it's hip hop or whether it's pop, all this stuff exists, you know, and you got to kind of take in as much of it as you can, or as you think is going to be relevant to your day. And, um, I still have fun with that part of the business, you know?
0: One of the things that I, um, that people who can just look you up can see is that you have jumped a couple of times in different agencies and that you even started, new agency with some partners and it always seems like you're able to grow in your own respect and kind of decide like you set your own path where do you think that comes from and where do you where do you see the the latest move and where it's going
1: well i mean i think that setting my own pace and making my own decisions a hundred percent comes from being a hardcore kid from being a punk rock kid there's no question about that man that, that's that's what i'm about you know it's about um you know answering to myself feeling good in my own skin and knowing you know that i kept it right you know um for who i am and you know and i have made some moves um but i've never made a move because I thought this feels like I'm climbing a ladder. Not that, not, not that those moves haven't been that, but I haven't been looking for ladders to climb. I've been looking to be comfortable in my own skin with who I am. And the times I've made moves, you know, there was a lot of things in play. Um, when I made, you know, that move to go work at artist and audience from my, You know bedroom in 94 It's because I knew I didn't know enough I needed to know more and I wasn't going to figure It out as fast as I needed to You know by myself And um, When I left Artists and Audience In the late 90s to go Start the thing with Vaughn and Kenny was strong It was because I didn't Want to you know the company wasn't Going in a direction where I wanted to go Both from a physical Location standpoint and what they were going to be interested in chasing. And it was a clean break because I didn't, they weren't necessarily looking for me to go. They would have let me come if I wanted to go, but they knew that I was going in a different direction. Um, And, you know, that thing I did with Vaughn and Kenny is a really special moment in my life, man. That was like really where we started to figure out how to, you know, really be what we were about, but also be, you know, well-rounded, young professionals as well um and i flipped that into working for myself for a really long time and it wasn't until um you know i was associated with radio takeover and i had a pretty big falling out with you know my partner that was the primary resource there that i knew i couldn't do that any longer and um I went, was at the agency group for 15 years, you know, before, you know, for 10 of it was the agency group and the last five is when UTA bought, um, the agency group. So I was there for 15 years and that was just such a corporate environment. It just didn't fit me. It just, the agency group was like, we're able to be who we were. (laughs) It really supported entrepreneurial, like mentality and, you know, I didn't have to fit into whatever the secret society was. And UTA was, was a little more like what we would all think corporate life is. It just wasn't me. Uh, It was not a bad place to work. And I learned a lot being there, but when my contract was up, you know, me and my guys left and we started this thing. Um, We started downtown group and, you know, we're all guys that are from, you know, me, Matt and Dave, anyway, the guys that started it and, you know, all the other, you know, men and women that, that work there, we're all, you know, from, from, from like the same culture, you know, they're not, we're not all from necessarily like East Coast hardcore background, but we're all from, you know, punk rock or metal or, or, or warp culture or whatever, like we're from the same stuff. And it's really special to take all this, like Lifetime of knowledge that I have From being Strictly indie to working for These big companies and learning all of this shit To wind up back Being indie like To be able to go back to being indie With this level of knowledge And this level of Thankfully stature And what we're doing There's nobody built like what we're doing And it's pretty fucking awesome
0: You actually touched on something that I think you're probably one of the few people that could try to break it down how I, and I, and I actually, you were brought up again in episode three, uh, actually episode five when we were talking about the fallout of Hellfest 2005 and how the Philly gang kind of all pulled together. And there was a million shows. And I know you had a, your uh, you had a bunch of shows between New Jersey and Philly. And when I asked Rich, he kind of didn't understand how the, how the wheels fell off the bus And do you have a better idea of how the
1: wheels fell off the bus Under that thing or no? Dude, that was such a nightmare um, And again, that was part of Like my falling out with my partner at Radio Takeover His Radio Takeover was so heavily involved with Health Fest and, You know, look I think people Started off with that situation in it With really good intentions But Something I said earlier in the, in this conversation And I didn't know I'd connect the dot later In this conversation over this But don't ever tell people That you can do shit That you know that you can't do And then figure out later How you're going to start trying to cover that up And that's just The short story of what happened with that Like be about what you're about Know what your limitations are Be truthful about those limitations And then over deliver on those Limitations don't Talk beyond your means. don't you know write checks that you can't cash. Don't put yourself in over your head because you're hoping to get lucky so that when things go bad, you fuck a bunch of people. And that's what happened with that situation. You know i I don't think those guys set out to fuck anybody. I think they 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 convinced themselves they could do that bigger and better than they could. They didn't tell anyone the truth. And when they couldn't have their expectations, um, when when they couldn't make reality meet the expectations that they basically convinced everybody involved that they could, the whole thing just washed out from under them. And, and it was really in poor form. And a lot of people, you know, were hurt from that situation. And it was very unfortunate.
0: No, I, in fact... It was only recently because of the whole Firefest documentaries that people started going back on Hellfest 2005. And um, actually, Radio it was Take- very
1: Firefest esque, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. I never thought of it yeah. that way. It was actually, like the punk rock version of Yeah, it really well, that that's,
0: it was. Yeah, especially on it Twitter and so Instagram, good. that was immediately like the uh, comparisons drawn. In <laughs> fact, we had kind of brought up, we actually brought up an episode two with Sonny how Radio Takeover began what started to be what you're dealing in now with these uh, live streams in a prototype sense. And so it was kind of interesting to see, on one hand, this guy had the eye of what could be, but then with Hellfest, it fell through. And now we're full circle, and we're dealing in a COVID environment you are dealing with a talent roster that can't perform in public and you being who you are just turned to fucking gears and you did, you did the dropkick show.
1: I did not do the dropkick show. Oh, was who's, who was
0: else. that? Was that you who did no. the dropkick show?
1: The first, no, the first, uh, um, I think, um, good grief. Um, I'll think of it in a second. Um, but the dropkick show, they, those guys did a really awesome job of kind of being one of the first ones to do one. And the first one they did was pretty big. Um, the first one we did was was one with clutch.
0: Oh, all right. So yeah, because I, I know in time yeah. I thought it was I thought it was in order. I know Code Orange did one in March. I thought you had something to do with Dropkick, and then I remember you telling me about clutch.
1: Yeah, no, and we didn't like, do the dropkicks one. Yeah. But
0: then you're like, yo, we're doing live streams. <laughs> so yeah. How, I mean, once again, I mean, now we're talking 30 years since you booked that show at Kenneth Square, maybe more I mean, than 30
1: years, maybe more than that. yeah. <laughs>
0: and, uh, you're booking digital shows, man.
1: Yeah. Where yeah. you? Wasn't my, wasn't my life dream to start slinging digital shows, but here <laughs> we are. Um, you know, man, it's like, uh, it, there's a couple of things, man. Um, we're looking to continue to figure out how to build business But we're also looking to help our bands Continue to build business And stay in business And maybe more importantly than that And this I'm not saying this from a bullshit standpoint But like Fans really miss being involved with their music Right? It's like If we're all sitting at fucking home And nobody's doing shit And nobody can do shit How can we do shit? Let's, let's figure it out And uh, I just feel like in a certain way, we're doing the same thing we were doing, which was curating shows and selling tickets and, you know, having bands and their fans connect. That's, that's, it's, it's not like, it's not more complicated than that for me. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we all still need some connection to the music we love. And this is just, Provided an opportunity for A new way Which is not a new way, live streaming has been a thing But no one has bothered To need to take it seriously Because we could all still Go to shows and do all These other things that has kind of like Forced the hand of like A change of acceptance to this Um, I don't know Whether it's good or bad, like I love Doing them because I can sit in my house On a Friday night when I couldn't go see a band you know, we, we did a show with down, you know, I love Down. Like the fact that I was able to see a live show with down in my living room in August was awesome. You know what I mean? Um, I would have loved to see it in person. That would have been better. But for where these times that we're at right now, it's awesome to do that. You know, it's like it's a way for us all to still stay connected to the shit that we love.
0: No, I agree wholeheartedly. I see. uh, I see different bands at every level doing something to stay connected within the community and with their fans. And bizarre enough, this stupid podcast seems to be something that I have friends who hit me every Friday night into Sunday into Monday. Like I finally called the new episode, and it's like this is this is mental. This is mentally supporting my brain right now, having the opportunity to delve deep into these things and. Honestly, you being someone that I look up to and mentored me and in real life, like true friendship, um, I want people to know you. And I wanted people to hear the perspectives that only you and I would talk about. And so I'm very happy that I have this vehicle. But I think if I had, if there wasn't a COVID situation, I don't think I'd have the extra free time at night to even start delving into this stuff. So I'm yeah. I looked. I, I look at this as a, some bit of a boon that we're able to kind of reshape how we interact with the culture, and I think that we're all going to be more excited. And I hope that everybody respects now seeing what we didn't have for so long. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, man. And this situation sucks. Nobody's going to say otherwise, but it gives us all a minute to think about things differently, right? And and you know. Hard times force innovation and it forces change, and you know some of the change is maybe not going to be so good in the long term, but some of it's going to be really good. And we, you know, for me, I'm trying to use my time wisely. You know, I'm trying to think about what other cool shit can I do when I can't do the cool shit that I'm already like doing. I'm still going to try and do cool shit. That's that's what it's going to come down to. So, you know, we're doing the live streams. We started. This podcast network, we're we're launching a label, and you know it's all just the further all the same shit that we already like to do. And uh I think at the end of this, while it will have been uncomfortable, you know, some of us will have used this time wisely enough that we'll be better off on the other side of it, even though it's tough to go through it. You know, and that that's that's what I'm about, and that's what I'm about. That that's what the people I want to spend my time with. It's one of the reasons. I love talking to you and you and I have had a lot of conversations through this, you know, and, um, you know, we're just, we're just, we're just not going to rest easy. You know, when, when, when something like this is presented, you know, it's a, it's it's a, it's a good thing. It can be made a good thing, you know, even though it's a I, bad thing. It sucks. No, no, I, no I, denying that.
0: I feel that specific people that we know, and obviously people that you've been incredibly close to who are no longer with us have huge impacts one kind of taking the best of a bad situation and learning how to turn it. For me, the hardest part about this entire process was getting the phone call from you about losing Brian because that was the rudder for this is hardcore. And I, I spoke to Kevin Horn everybody, and we still say, like, without someone like him to call and ask, like, how does this get figured out? I felt rudderless for a long time, just in like so I had to go to you and go, I don't know what's going on. Man. Like it feels weird. It felt weird for the first two or three months because you don't have that person who would in- immediately be like, well, we'll make the best of it. You know, like and I feel that only through doing different projects or not abandoning projects, but changing gears and using the inertia and the experience we have to do something different, but within the scope is the only way that we're going to continue forward. And uh I wanted to ask you something because I know how much you you were attached to these people who I, I look up to, but um, I almost wanted to start a separate podcast over this because in thinking about people to talk to, we obviously lost Jack Flanagan last year. How many people do you think like Jack are out there that you worked with that you learned some of the original stuff? Like he was in The Mob. He put out some of the first New York hardcore 7-inches. How many yeah. people like Jack did you intercounter and learn from and what kind of stuff did you learn from them kind of people?
1: Well, Jack is so recent, and Brian is so recent that they're really those two people are really easy to to. I can give hundreds of um, you know examples about that. You know, um, you know, there's other people over the years that, man, you know, they left they left an imprint, but maybe the specifics of some of those relationships were. Um, maybe like a little more in like specific, but Jack and Brian, those guys. And honestly, you couldn't mention two guys that I think like are more legit people that I admire and exemplify the kind of people that I wish there was more of and wish hadn't left because we need more people like those guys than and not less, and, and they're less by the day at this point. But, you know, Jack only ever said it how it was. He didn't, there was no mixing Jack's words or a misunderstanding where he, where it's coming from. He never, um, you know, tried to talk around the truth or hide the truth. He said what the truth was 100% of the time. Whether, whether that was good or whether that was what you wanted to hear or not. Um, sometimes his truth wasn't even the truth it was just his version of the truth. and you know then you have to wrangle with that. you have to wrestle that you have to that now you got to battle that dude that's that definitive to believe something that maybe you don't believe but you could have those kind of conversations and be straight with each other and wind up on the other side of, a, of an awkward conversation with what's right and everybody could live with each other on that. I that happened with me and Jack a million times and I I respect no person more than I respect a person like that. Um Brian you know one of the legitimately most kind-hearted sweet human beings on the planet and he was nobody's bitch either. Um and um you know He's the kind of guy that would always, you know, remind you to keep love in the forefront of the things that you were doing and, you know, remind you to have patience about things. And, uh, you know, we talk about these kind of people. I don't want to get myself choked up about talking about these guys. I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry. No,
1: these are the, but, but these are the, these are the kind of values that I try to like live with in my life, and that are, these are the kind of values that you know I want to have of people around me. That's who my guys are, you know, at Sound Talent with Dave and, and and Matt and the people you know that work at the company. That's my relationship with you, you know. That's my relationship with with the people that I spend my real time with in in life, and you know, that's who Jack and Brian were to me.
0: You know, I know that you know this, but I'll say it publicly for the people listening. If you were not such a steward and friend to me, there never would have been the second era of this is hardcore, because you're the one who said, "Dude, go to Brian, talk to him, go to the factory," and you and you you made that bridge. And I'll tell you a funny story; you'll crack up. So the first time I had like a real business meeting with him, he. Wanted to go to Pat's And we ate one of them weird cheesesteaks That he likes with the weird <laughs> cheese <laughs> And yeah. he's just being super casual Like breaking the ice And I was like I don't want to deal with fucking state And there's got to be stage diving And he takes me to the factory And I, he actually like opened the door Which I thought was crazy like he had a key to open the door And he's like Do you think we could jump off the stage here? Like punked me out After we just ate Pat's <laughs> And then we went back to the office We went back to the office To actually talk about How this is hardcore could work Knowing that we couldn't jump off that stage And he got a phone call From a Jerry Market and he's like All I heard on his end was I don't care if they want a fucking tiger Just get it for them it's their stupid money anyway (laughs) And like I'm already (laughs) bewildered Because I've just hung out with this dude And I Because I had hung out at your bar When you guys owned that bar And because he yelled at me many years ago For punching somebody outside of one of his shows I knew Brian but I wasn't close with him but we just oh. ate a cheesesteak. He just punked me out on the stage at what would be the, where this hardcore would be at for the next eight years, and then I'm like, he hangs up and he like acts like nothing happened. I'm like, what's the whole tiger thing? He's like, fucking Guns N' Roses, man. They got like this crazy rider, but like it's a door deal. So they spend ten thousand dollars. It's just stupid money anyway. And I'm like, this is the fucking dude I'm dealing with. He's fucking with Guns N' Roses, and I was like, <laughs> only, only Tim Moore would put me in this room. <laughs> like,
1: oh, but awesome, had you.
0: Man had you not seen that this is hardcore could go to that and you made that connection, we never would have got there. And in public for the world to hear, thank you for giving us that bridge and that relationship that would eventually be the next step and ever in my booking by learning now from Brian, you know? Yeah. So I appreciate you being that uh, bridge to that.
1: Yeah, man. Well, he's a legit guy and, the, I can hear in Brian's voice. I don't care if it's a tiger yet. Yeah. I can hear, I can hear that being said. And just for the record, when he pointed out to you, because you, there's no context to that, like when he yeah. pointed out to you that he said, "What? What? For real? People can jump off this stage? It's because the stage is eight feet high. He doesn't yeah, like want to break as <laughs> I didn't so, know. So, so <laughs> your solution to that was to build a stage that was only three feet high.
0: Yeah, like, like he, he still made it happen. Yeah, he literally, he literally like got on the phone. and was like, "Hey, Jerry, we need to figure something out." But like, I'm sitting there eating cheesesteaks, being young and dumb, and like, I'm not fucking doing it if there's no fucking stage diving. And he's like, he physically took me on the stage to be like, "This is why there's no fucking stage diving at the Electric
1: Factory." And I right. felt Do you know, so, you want to jump off the stage? Yeah,
0: literally, immediately punked me out on it, and it was like, <laughs> "Fuck, man! All right, this is who, I'm... and <laughs> this is like a great, so awesome. it's like a great, this is hardcore moment and. Just learning that Brian's not gonna say no, he's gonna explain why it's no, but then he's gonna immediately solu- give a solution for how we can both work. Yeah. And um, I know that you have worked with so many. I I know it's hard for you to brag, but I always tell people like, dude, you literally have a guitar signed by Zach Wilde on your guitar, on your on your on your wall. <laughs> like, it's fucking crazy. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Ever, my guy,
0: man. Yeah Love like it. that's your Like your bros with Zach Wild but you also Could hang with Freddie and Hoya At the bar and be like yo this is a great show <laughs> Like <laughs> right, you have right. You have this ability I mean You also book Demons and Wizards By booking both Blind Guardian And Ice Earth like you have this like Crazy grab on both The metal world and the Hardcore world and that started Early in this story And so I, I Need to know like I don't need you to say like, hey, fuck these guys, but what is one of the most rewarding experiences, whether it's watching a band grow and succeed or just a rewarding experience, just finally being able to book a band that you've always enjoyed and have a chance to work with?
1: I I mean, look, it's great like booking a band that I love. It's great booking these bigger bands. It's very rewarding to book these bigger shows. There is no better moment for me, and there never has been, Than when, like, a small band is just starting to get popular and you see, like, the electricity and the madness of it happening, you know? And because I've been always so involved with metal and hardcore music, like, I've seen that moment happen in hardcore and metal music a million times. It never gets old to me. And it is the most fucking fun. Because you know what those shows feel like. Everyone who's going to listen to this... And and you personally and me personally, we know exactly what that moment is. We've been to a million shows where it's the first time that that happened with a band, and that and and the, and the, and and the people in the room are losing their fucking minds. There's nothing better than that. So what's what's a funny perspective that I've never
0: said to you? You are obviously a very tall human, and you have a very distinct, very well-known look. And one of the great, <laughs> mo- well, it, it paints a good picture. So as a promoter, and you obviously come into my shows, sometimes there's nothing better because you and me both share the idea that standing on the stage sucks and you want to watch the band from the floor to kind of see the crowd. Yeah. But many of my shows that are going very well, there's like this bright smile and light with you at your glasses watching like at the, <laughs> like a show. And I could always tell if the show is going well if you're there and you got this smile like, yeah, this is fucking great. And it's... It's always like I could tell that when you're at a show, you're there for the moment. And, and so when you just said that, that's what immediately made me think like, you know, and you always have a critical like, hey, man, you know, that band's actually pretty like you're not there to hobnob and, you know, like find the next band like you legitimately immerse yourself in the moment of that show, regardless of who I book. But like the Tim approval face is always something I'm looking for, like at a crazy pack show, like whether it's a church or something. You're always like, I because you're obviously so tall, you don't have to lean over someone. So I could pick you <laughs> out. I'm like, oh, Tim's smiling. All right, this is a good show. <laughs>
1: well, I'm glad that you picked up on that, man. Cause I genuinely have some for some reason never gotten jaded, man. I can't, I don't always want to sit through all five bands on a show or sit through every band on a fest. But when I made it up in my mind that I'm gonna go and watch the show, whether it's, you know, for a full set or you know, four bands or whatever I end up deciding to do, like I'm not jaded about it, man. If the show is is rocking, I'm like legit in it for sure, and I I, I love that part of like how how great is it that that, that me going the shows has been the only thing I've ever had to do with my life. That's that's what my life is, is going to shows. I'm, I'm, I feel extremely lucky to have that life, man.
0: No, I, I, and one of the things about your love of it is that you don't ever come with a bit like you actually punk me out when I'm being bitter or when I'm being like, you've had a change and you had a positive change in my perspective on things because I'm watching you and how successful you've been and how supportive you've been. That I had to realize like no I- I'm not looking At this from the right sphere because this dude Has it all And he's doing so well with so many fucking Different bands and you're still so fucking Happy that I needed to change my perspective Because I talked to you you'd be like oh, Come on stop you know like you had to like you had to Bring the cheer out of me because I had a lot Of curmudgeon things so I-, I really learned A lot in that regard from you Because you're like no man this is fucking great Um <laughs> and and when I'm I say Great uh whether it was the first time we did chromags back with the lineup that we did at Broad Street ministry i imagine you had the same face when you did that first like re- reunited i wasn't with you guys but i know you were probably equally psyched the first time you seen the first mismitch shit back like you're that dude like it doesn't matter what the size of the room is you're excited for that moment you know
1: yeah no doubt man for sure absolutely and and and, and the Cro- the first time a, a good chromags lineup was rolled back out there was just as good as the first time the Misfits uh, Reunited for sure.
0: Nah, it's like, it's really one of things. And in fact, uh, it's one of these blessings to have that time, like the, the, the time to be able to like pick your brain. I wonder how much do you feel now with the corporate in- involvement? How much do you say that when you go into an idea, whether it's a tour package or a specific show, how much of you has to kind of not fight to the point where you're going to lose a situation like, me you know me how I work I like to book a bill top down but now dealing with corporate entities live nation all these other aspects how much of it do you do you feel like you go in for your best situation for the band and if some of the details don't come out the way you want you're still looking at the uh the bigger picture overall versus total control
1: Yeah I mean well look it, the world is the world man the world is is ruled by corporate you know I mean I, it, that's that's bigger than both of us right it's it's a uh, I'm still trying to coexist in this world with me as me and bring what I bring to those situations. So, you know, I go into these situations knowing that you got to, you got to play, you got to be part of the game a little bit, you know? And, um, you know, it's always a compromise and, and it's, you know, not always going to be. Uh, it, I do miss it because, you know, in in the nineties uh in the two thousands, early two thousands, you could you could you could be a little bit more it's my way or no way than you can be now. And that 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 isn't always great, but I would say there's a lot of access and opportunity that that comes now because of the way that it's set up. And I don't that's not lost on me. And there's a lot of good people that that work in that that infrastructure that are on my wavelength and that have stuck up for me and stuck up for my bands and stuck up for this culture that the culture thrives in that, in that environment. So, you know, I I just kind of chalked it up to you got to take the good with the bad with this because there's no stopping what it is Um, until COVID happened. Now we don't know what it's going to be moving forward. That's a fact, Uh, you know, and I'm not even going to, Try and sit here and predict what that is, but I I think what this is will change some things. I, I don't know that that means there's going to be less corporate or less of the players than what it is, but you know this business is going to go through a different evolution uh, than what we were headed towards on the other side of this. That's for sure. Now
0: I haven't spoke to anybody else specifically on this because I don't I don't think there's anybody else besides you that can lay it out as easily. In the wake of COVID, a couple new organizations have started to pop up. One, I think it's called NIVA. The other is NITO, something about the talent. Yeah. Can yeah. you break down how those two work? And because I, I, I'm more interested, but again, I read some stuff, but i I'd like to get your hands-on perspective and experience on how these uh, new organizations are going to be working.
1: Yeah. This shit is crazy, man. Um, our company – is part of NIT NITO, NITO, National Independent Talent Organizations. Um, and we were somewhat inspired by NEVA, which is National Independence Venue Association. And both of these things um, were put together uh, out of necessity because of what COVID is doing to live music business in general. It's put us out of business. I mean, hopefully most of us are going to survive it somehow. But we were literally the first businesses down, and we're going to be literally the last businesses back to work. And right now, I mean, this looks like it's going to go deep into 2021. It's going to go likely over a year when any of us have made any money doing what we were doing. Like, we make some money now from the live streams and from the podcasting, and some other companies are figuring out some hustles. But our core business, what we do, this shit is out of luck. And um, these companies, Nito and Neva, um, were built to basically develop a larger voice to let, you know, the rest of the world know that we're getting fucked pretty hard by this differently than a lot of the other businesses are out there. Because the PPP that was out there and some of the other stuff helped businesses get back to that point where they were seeing 25% business or they could go back to work at a hundred percent or whatever we don't, our, 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 our business isn't going to be that way We're we're going to be out of business for a lot longer. And these companies, um, these organizations rather have been built to be a voice, um, in Washington really to say, Hey, don't forget about this complete ecosystem that employs, literally hundreds of thousands of people and creates you know job opportunity and an economic backbone to you know towns and cities all over the nation don't forget that we exist and don't leave us to fucking die um and you know there's washington lobbyists involved and not only that it's a support network for us all to talk with each other and you know, be able to discuss different plans of how, you know, we're all going to wiggle our way through to the other side of this. You know, you can't, you can't run a business with a bunch of employees when you have no income for 17 months in a row, you know, which is what we're, or more, which is what this business is looking at, you know. So it's, um, it's really cool, honestly, that like Neva has well over 2,000 Different independent promoters and venues Associated with it That would have never happened before Where they were all banding together To help each other survive And be a louder voice uh, And talk about What the significance Of what those, those Independent businesses Mean uh, Culturally in every market Around the country You know the different management companies and independent agencies that are involved with NITO. like we weren't all having daily conversations with each other about each other's businesses and about trying to help each other survive. It was kill or be killed before this. It's a really amazing thing that's happened as a result of this, but it's still super fucking scary as well.
0: You touched exactly where I was going to get to. One of the Hardest things that I've seen in the music industry and what part of the industry that I delve in and deal with is a, exactly what you said a very capitalist, killer be kill, and in sometimes very rude fashion, step over someone for that next show or for that next tour situation. And so I wonder, I wondered until you had laid that out just exactly how these two individual organizations who represent two sides of the same coin would find a way to operate amongst itself. And uh, I'm really happy that you can lay it out for me that way.
1: Yeah, man. It's definitely a situation of like, you know, let's all speak for each other and speak up for each other. So that there's some version of this on the other side of, of COVID, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, this business is always going to be, you know a really tough business. I mean, it, it you know, this is not uh, a business where where typically speaking, everybody is out for each other's goodwill. like it's just not. Uh, it's unfortunate a lot of times, but it is what it is. and there's a lot of good things about it. But right now, these two organizations, and there's others out there inside of it as well, but it's really cool. To see everybody understanding that without all of us, there's none of us, and we're headed. You know, I don't know that we're headed. Hopefully, a lot of us are going to survive this. Um, some of us definitely are, um, but right now, everyone is trying to lift each other up to help get to the other side of it, and it's it's pretty cool. When you when you
0: talk about surviving, one of the things that I have speak spoke with people, but obviously not from the same. Experience and information Is that there was A wellspring of bands Who for whatever Purpose whether they're young so they can live at home Were able to live off the money They were getting from their tours And I don't know if All of them will be able to return back to full Duty and Without it's not besmirching anybody Or saying good riddance but I think there's a good thing about Some of the bands who just by the fortune of being able to were full-time not having to, because I think the better bands will stand out again, as opposed to being lumped into these bands. Like you said, bands on the way up, bands that were hitting their mark and starting to come, I started seeing at the smaller level the same run-of-the-mill bands because they could tour full-time, getting an opportunity because they were able to tour versus a band that was really starting to have more organic growth but maybe you can't do the 6 months of touring a year. So maybe there'll be a better balance at the smaller level, but I think at the larger level it I watch a lot of my friends bands suffer and it's kind of scary, you know?
1: Yeah. No, it's unfortunate, man. A lot of people are not going to survive this. They're going to get on to some other lifestyle, you know, and a lot of people are they have real love for this and they're super invested into it one way or another. And uh you know, it, it's damaging lives. It's, a, you know, I don't want to go on like a whole, you know, COVID tangent because it's not how I live my life and it's not how I think day to day. But if 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 we get into a conversation about it, this shit is dark, man. You know, I mean, there's going to be some beautiful and amazing things that come out of it as well, but this shit, is, it ain't no joke. It's, it's, it's hurting people very badly. You're the first guest that I've broached the subject with
0: so, uh, cyber, a, a touch here and a touch there because I don't really like speaking on it, and I think the uncertainty of it is a dark cloud that I don't like looking at, and I yep. try to find where the silver lining is. Yep. But I respect your specific information over everybody else, which is why I waited to talk to you the most depth that you know get the most depth out of because I know that how far you're deep and in interacting with it on a daily basis. And when you bring up other lifestyles, I'm very happy to see that you're busy with sound talent media and other formats, because I was worried that hardcore metal was going to lose one of its greatest booking agents and champions to the world of derby racing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't, I don't think, you like how I snuck that in? I don't, think, in? My, I don't <laughs> think my auto racing career is going to trump uh, me being in the music business. I do love it, but it's, uh, I don't, I, I don't know that that's going to, uh, it's not going to be a replacement. It was a, it was good to be able to do it while I had some more free time this summer.
0: So, um, Tim's brother, <laughs> Tim's brother, Kyle is a racer and I have his t-shirt. I still wear it occasionally. Kyle Bohr. <laughs> hey, it's my boy. <laughs> and, uh, hard man. car, hard Carl had, uh, given me the four one, one cause he was going to the races, but. How to feel to jump in that r- I mean, I know that your family was involved in that. I guess give me a short rundown of how you guys got involved. And then I want to I want you kind of ended on saying like how to feel to like legitimately get into the race itself.
1: Yeah. This is a good break from the COVID thing and it's a total opposite lifestyle of of the music stuff. Um but you know, I mean this goes back to my father and my brother. You know, I I grew up a country boy like my mom is the youngest of 12 brothers and sisters who were raised on a dupont farm in delaware and my father comes from a similar background and um my my dad my whole life was like he was into two things he was in music and playing guitar and playing bands but his other main passion was um was being a motorhead he was you know was like like racing he liked horsepower he liked, you know building engines and you know and we always used to go to dirt track races as a kid and i i feel like i got more of the music side of, of my dad and my brother got more of the the motorhead side of it and as i got more into being into punk rock and going to shows and hardcore and everything um my brother got just more and more into that and he started probably 12 years ago give or take 15 years ago he started he bought a dirt track modified and he started racing and um i hadn't been to a race in a long time and i went basically uh you know just to support him and hang out with him and um you know, he didn't do so great those first couple of years and he's my brother. So I was like, nah, fuck that. We're not going to not do great at this. We're going to, we're going to team up and put our efforts into this and make this awesome. And it became like a pretty good escape from the compression of the music business side of my, my lifestyle and music. Like I love all the, the, I love going to shows. I love helping bands. I love doing all that. I love the business part of it. But goddamn, damn, it's stressful. And this became like a cool escape because I could always usually go to a festival on a Friday or a Sunday. And I could usually cover any of the band shows that I wanted to, you know, on any day of the week other than Saturdays. And I kept Saturdays to go for the last 12 years to go to the dirt track and, and race with my brother. And a few years ago, he was in a pretty bad accident and broke his back in three different places, and we stopped racing for a couple of years uh, while he got better. And this year, uh, they said, "You know what? Why don't you just drive it?" And I'd never driven it before; I'd never even thought about driving because it's such a competitive sport. By the time my brother started getting good, I I'm was like, "I'm, I'm never going to get one of these things. We're just going to keep making him better." And uh, it was awesome to drive this year. It was it was, it was awesome. It was awesome to crash at 100 miles an hour, weirdly enough. It was, it was very – it was like I said to you earlier, like we grew up, it's like it's not fun until somebody gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: Well, I know, I know that people who are in the business that you're in, there's a rush that comes from sealing deals. There's a rush from the excitement, like they say, the thrill of victory or you're dealing with the agony of defeat. And so I know just from talking to you and and being close with you that on any given night you're seeing any amount of shows that are coming through here or traveling to New York or you got to do see a band. How much do you think it's just keeping the relationships? Does it matter for you to be at your band shows?
1: Yeah, it's uh, look you know the whole relationship with bands is based on trust, right? So they they want to see me. I want to see them. We want to know each other. I want to know that I relate to what they are trying to do with the path that they're on. Uh, I I need to understand that. I need to live that with them. And um, that's a really big part of this is, is i work with bands that I understand and that I see what they're trying to do and I see how I can make a difference. So if I'm not at the shows, seeing what's going on, Having a talk with them about you know what they're trying to do, then I'm not going to be able to help them make the moves that they need to make to make it work. So it's a super big part of what we're doing. How much do you think people think
0: your job is basically just emails and phone calls versus how much hands on, just talking to the bands and the band's managers to see where they're going? Do you think it really
1: is? I, it's such like a an all day job man it's like I start work at nine, ten, eleven in the morning, depending on you know what the day before was like, one way or the other. Usually it's gotta be in that 9:30, 10, 10 o'clock zone. And a lot of times I don't finish doing what I'm doing for one reason or another until two in the morning. That's not that's not an irregular you know, situation where, you know, we work during the day. We, you know, maybe go to a, a meeting at some point during the day, go back to work, go have dinner, go to a show, hang out after the show. And there's a lot of, you know, fun that goes on inside all that too. But it's, it's, you know, it's, you're putting, you're putting a lot of miles on the body. Uh But it is, it's, it, it's around the clock, man. You know, it's a, if there's a problem at a show, there's a problem at the loadout after a show. I'm getting a call. You know, it doesn't matter that it's one o'clock and I've been asleep for you well, know a couple hours. It doesn't. If I've been at another show and I've had you know a, a, a couple of handfuls of drinks and you know I'm, I'm a little out in left field, and I get a real serious call from something else happening somewhere else, I got to get my brain straight to be able to solve that problem. It's a That's a a, that is It's kind of the beauty of the job man It's like it's I'm not complaining about it that's why I signed up for it I I love that aspect of it but You know the going to the shows And 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 being Part of the life is as important As it is answering the phone And sending the emails for sure
0: I can attest to um, A time when we were both out with our Wives eating dinner at that Greek place And you're like oh shit I gotta take this call (laughs) <laughs> and it was something about a malfunctioning earpiece at a show and I, and I watched the attention to detail that you put Into what one of your band's shows was dealing with In a completely other state I mean, yeah, we were having a great night Eating a ton of food and laughing and enjoying it But like, I learned that night that Regardless of what you're doing in your personal life If you're working for something, you're working for someone That you had to put that attention out yeah. And so it makes sense to me when you say this, and I and I wanted to illustrate that to people listening. Like, Tim is the guy that, yeah, he's going to be having drinks and telling you to try this multiple dish Greek food with both our wives and we're having a fucking blast. But then you're immediately going to be able to drop everything if you need to get on a phone call and solve a problem. Cool. And I, I that's a really great trait that you have in that your work ethic and that you put the work that far ahead but it goes back to I believe What you were saying you had to Provide for your family there I feel like It's sometimes you've never left that Survivor mode and that and that drive Is always going to be in you
1: Yeah 100% man yeah, that, that is that is sewn in there pretty Pretty hard and You know it's a uh, You know there, there's a lot of moving parts with these Shows and it, it's funny Some of these things that come up that are interruptions It's frustrating because sometimes it's fucking stupid like, you, you can't believe that a couple of people that are in a location dealing with something can't figure out something that are while they're there looking at it. When a third party can come in, not even see what's going on, and through a couple of sentences, come up with a scenario that totally solves the stupid fucking problem. Um, that happens all the fucking time. But a lot of times, like, man, there's a real problem here. And somebody has to, you know, come up with a solution to it. And, uh, I'm not the only person that gets those calls, but I, I get those calls and, and, and I'm being, I'm being put in a position where I'm, I have to be the person that comes up with the solution. Nobody else has, has it. And, uh, that that's interesting. That's fun. That's a component of it. You know, one of the things. I'm gonna.
0: I'll tell some listeners about some of the fun Tim Board things that I've had to go through. I lost a bunch of money to you through a terror show, and instead of you screaming and yelling at me, we started meeting about once every two weeks so I could pay you back. We, <laughs> and what came out of it was you having a good conversation and talking to me. And I think at one point we actually sat down. I think it was with Paul Comroy, and we went to meet at seafood to talk about the 10 for 10 tour. And that's when I learned that you ate snapping turtle. And I was so freaked out that you ate snapping turtle, (laughs) but it was what I, what I was uh, illustrating besides learning that you are a complete country boy that learned how to eat snapping turtle at a young age was that every time I interact with you in a light dinner session or hang, there's lessons to be learned and there's things. And I feel like you're the kind of person that constantly exudes information and wants people to learn. And I know uh, whether they're former partners or just people coming under you, you've impacted and mentored so many people. And I think that's one of your greatest gifts as a person with so much experience and so much success is that you're not, you, you know, like you're an open source. And I think that more people should be that because you have so much to give. And I always appreciated that aspect of you that I could come to you with a question or in a meal, we can have a conversation and you could give me an, a layout of your perspective.
1: Yeah. Well, I've been fortunate in my life that I've had a few people that have been that to me. And uh you know, I don't always get to be that for, you know other situations when when it pre- but when it does present itself I want to be that person you know it's uh We're all trying to get through the fucking maze here man and Some of us got answers at different times and some of us don't have answers in, at different times And we all got to be there to help each other get through the maze that's the way I look at it I really live that well you know Well that that
0: couldn't be more evident and now um a very well-known part of this is hardcore where Bad luck 13 was out of control, not the band, but the kids in the crowd. And uh for Philadelphia hardcore people, especially old school veterans, there was a time when Tim Bohr was a very feared human on the dance floor, and something that I always <laughs> as a kid was like, Oh shit, there's Tim Bohr. You know, like oh shit, you know, like there was that mystique and that not just that as a booker, because I knew you booked bands, but you were you were uh, An infamous human being in the Philadelphia hardcore and New York hardcore world. But there was something awesome about me kind of regulating some of the chaos. And you did this big brother thing. You're like, come here, come on. And you had to like walk me out like you're getting in trouble. That's it. And so I have to ask you, from being a former goon to having to rein in me, (laughs) how would that feel for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's been a lot of those moments with a lot of people, man. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. You know what? There's, there, uh, you know, I don't talk about it much anymore, but there was definitely a point where I would fire off and ask and worry about whether or not it was the right thing to have done after it happened. But, and and I never, ever, somebody else was being that guy. Like, I never passed judgment on that situation because it's such a big part of what hardcore was for so long. It still is. Um, I wish that it wasn't, but. You know, there would be times I would see situations pop off and I would just I would just kind of be like, you know, does this need to happen right now or whatever? It was it was fun to like, it's always fun to see if we can snap ourselves out of the element of like just wanting to run somebody over and see if we can laugh it off. I, I I just love that shit, man. You know? I never mind when it I never mind when it when it goes all the way either. I never I don't normally feel bad when someone gets punched in the face, but once in a while I do, I, I, I do feel bad about it. No, I, I just, I just knew I was at like, Oh shit. Level
0: foot. Tim's like, come on, that's it. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, it was like a great raining <laughs> in moment. Like, Oh shit. I I definitely fucked up. If Tim's coming out here, to be like,
1: all right, you're done for the night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it seems so ridiculous, man. seems so ridiculous. But it but it's
0: the great it's a great relationship that you and I have and that perspective that everything's chaotic but your eyes are still on the show, you know. Um I'll ask you a couple quick ones because we've been talking for a while. What is your biggest regret in your entire career? Like career based regret?
1: Man, um I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> I, I shouldn't have dismissed that Limp Bizkit record that was given to me. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I know I have regrets, but I don't, I don't wear them on me for me to like have this like moment. You know what I mean? I think my 20s were so riddled with like insane behavior. That I had many <laughs> regretful moments, but I also wouldn't take any of them back. I, I don't even know if I can answer that question honestly. No, I think it's good to
0: live without regret. You know, like it's good to not wax yeah. too much nostalgically. But some people, some people have said different things. You know, whether it was like I acted in a way and I lost a friendship over something. How, and this worker's rule in the next question: How much do you think that business decisions may have ruined friendships? And now that you're way past that point, you can't get that friendship back.
1: I had a couple of um, hard lessons um, in the 90s in that regard because I was so in like hardcore on a day-to-day that like if a relationship came undone as a result of business, it was definitely super crushing. And I think it was probably crushing for everybody involved. But for me, I really took that to heart because I tried. So I worked so hard for the people that I was in business with. If we would have a falling out, I was so invested in that friendship that it it was a real blow. And I think, I think that taught me to have a little bit of a layer in there. Uh, I'm still have friendships and relationships uh with the artists that i work with but i don't think you know since then i've never gotten as deep as i was with some of those friendships where you know i would be surprised you know it's funny man when 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 everybody's fighting for their own lives decisions get made for what people believe is the go to that fight. And not everybody can share the same perspective of what that outcome is all the time. And that's what happens in those situations. And um I don't think that I ever burned a relationship that was meaningful to me so badly that I was never able to come back to it on some level. I certainly had really close relationships in business. That will never be the same again, but I've never left a relationship. I don't think where I would say we were, I was never able to go back and look that person in the eye again, or that we weren't able to at least, you know, come to grips with the fact that that was then. And this is now, and maybe it'll never be like that again, but we're still cool. I've been lucky that way.
0: No, it's very lucky, especially for the time frame and just how long you've been in the business what are the well I don't want to give a number. What are the traits or attributes or things that you look to as you said previously with uh, bands on the rise that you know, okay, this is the kind of band that I can work with.
1: That's a, that's a that's a tough question cuz I think that's it's probably never the exact same answer. Um, but Bands that self start that's a really important detail, man, like bands that have already been grinding are gonna grind, whether you jump in and help or not, you know that's a big fun that that says everything about where they're going with their with their career, you know, if they're trying to have a career, you know, like some bands just have that attitude that they're taking it no matter what and Yeah, they're looking for help And they're looking for support But they're not looking for a handout I I hate entitlement Um, You know um, You know, so that's You know, a big deal But also, there's like this intangible About bands That are going somewhere Like, there's just a chemistry With the people that are involved There's an electricity when they start playing You know Um And probably everybody can see it. I've just been able to be fortunate enough to be able to communicate with it. And then the other thing is, I like bands that are doing something a little different than what the rest of the bands are in the pack. You know, that's what, you know, Type All is probably, uh, to this day, it's one of my favorite bands. You know, there'll never be another band that sounds like them, but no one sounded like them while they were a band. They were an absolute true original in that regard you know um and 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 a lot of the bands i've worked with it had real momentum even if they never became huge they they had their moment and it was because they were a band like that in some way do you
0: feel that a band who could literally tour as much as possible and be available for any kind of support slot Will get a chance to rise over creative bands, or do you think the cosmos figures it out
1: if the band's just like a jobber? <laughs> I think of a band as a jobber; uh, they can only last so long, uh, just being desperately available all the time. You know, I think there's a there's some healthiness to being available uh, all the time. For a period of time Like when you're up and coming Showing that you're ready to work And and that you'll go to work That's a good thing you know But either Like the fans start to Like get into you Or they don't And just being unrelentingly available Doesn't necessarily change that And if the fans Do start to take to you You have to kind of understand The balance of making yourself available strategically so people don't get sick of you you know what i mean so um and that you can properly you know be fanning your own flame for the good of continuing to build momentum and so that you know the fans continue to stay in love with you like that 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 is a carefully crafted magic trick
0: now a question that has some bearing not directly to heybreed but heybreed is an example I often use to people younger bands who have um some feet in the music industry now are being driven directly to a follow up record within two years of their first l p really nailing it but as we looked at what heypried did, you know they fucking they did everything they could before they needed that second record, and that really what you said about Clutch ties into that where they Seated themselves so much deeper than just Hardcore on that record That I find that a lot of The hardcore bands that I deal with And it's mainly with hardcore that I'm talking about I feel like sometimes that push for The second record and that two-year Touring cycle pushes These bands to a record that they're not ready to Release and they don't need to release because they still haven't played enough And I wonder right. your thoughts on that
1: Yeah, no, I, I think You got to if if there's energy around the record and people haven't gotten enough of it, you know, I'm not saying you, you don't run it out of gas. That's not good either. But I think y- you want to be able to get the full experience out of that. You know what I mean? And, and if there's more, if people aren't sick of it and, you know, and, and there's more to get out of it, run it out, you know, take it a little further. And it, It's a tricky thing, though, because I think some bands, rightfully so, they they get sick of themselves a little bit, right? Like It's like, you might see that band three times in one year, and you feel like maybe you would have seen, like to see them five times, maybe, for certain bands, right? But for that band, it's like, they're doing it every day. They didn't see each other. They didn't see three shows they saw 300 shows it's creatively to do something different and it's it it doesn't always wind up perfect that way and and you know that's okay in those situations but i, I do think like breed is a really good example because especially those early days and like you were there to see that i was there to see that not everybody was a, a lot of people still around hardcore or a lot around metal were there for that and Hapri was such an exciting band to see. It was so chaotic to go to a Hapri show back in, in, like it was insane to go to a Hapri show it, for every for reason, very they, stretch they were, of time.
0: For a very like, time. Yeah. Know?
1: They were like a time bomb to go see a show. Like it was going to be explosive, you know, and out of control every time. And it, it was so fresh to see them every time for that reason. But Like that's why they have a legacy that's 30 years deep at this point. Almost no band can do that, you know. Terror's like that. Terror, terror still to this day is like you you, they're they're they they are extra every time you see them, but most bands don't bring it like that, you know.
0: No, they're exemplary and obviously the high watermark for live music, especially within hardcore. Um, I got two left. You got a small booking agent. Maybe he's got a couple bands under him. What's the advice you give to him if his band? Like, what do you what do you give a um, early advice to a smaller agent, or do you wait for them to come to you? Like when you interact with these smaller agents trying to get your their bands on your bills.
1: Um, I mean, you know, from a broad sense.
0: Yeah, more broadly, not directly, but more yeah. broadly.
1: Yeah, from a broad sense, I I I think you know your job is to think strategically. You know, you're not just booking shows. You you are just booking shows. You are just getting gigs, but the the gigs that you're getting, you know, for for an early band and for an early booking agent, you you got to kind of marry with like we got to get what we can get and take advantage of those opportunities with. I got to make these opportunities really count, so that it, it creates better opportunities that I'm going to flip this into. And you, you really have to think that way. Um, and you know, I have said it a couple times throughout this conversation, but you know, don't, don't, don't lie to people to skip steps. Don't tell, uh, you know, a promoter that you know the band is worth something that they're not to disappoint them later because they'll remember that and they're not gonna they're not gonna look at you as a resource in the future. And don't lie to the bands that you can deliver things that you can't deliver. Those 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 would be my broad strokes advice. Think strategically. I think that's number one really you got to think strategically. No, You're great. building something. That's you know? great advice.
0: Um, I know that in the modern era That I'm most familiar with right now A lot of younger I might say younger, I mean newer bands With younger members Are being walked right into Getting managers When they're not headlining shows That have 150 people If they headline And I would like your perspective as an agent And having worked as a management How soon does a band really need a manager? <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yeah, I, don't, I, saved, I, don't know. I saved the
0: deep. I, I saved the deep one for last.
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, you know, like, I mean, let, let's first prove that a band is good, can really play a great show, and really blow people's you know heads off their shoulders when they perform. That's that's number one. Let's make sure that they can get in the van. And survive a couple of tours with each other. I've said this for two decades now. Like getting in a traveling cylinder with seven other human beings and living with that sanity and surviving that sanity and being willing to take on that sanity, sanity after you've done it for seven weeks and 5,000 miles then let's talk about whether or not we're making a career out of this like do that first you know what i mean like i couldn't go go stay committed to this life and then let's get a manager you know what i mean at at the at the earliest of stages you know what i mean at 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 the the, the you know let's let's pres- let's show that there's some sort of actual business here before we have a before we have a manager you know or an agent for that matter
0: I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I find that the impetus for the new manager, the new agent is like, I've got to get this band. Like it's like almost like in a, in a gardening situation, you got to let these bands grow a little before you try to pluck them out and make something out of them. And I see it happen a lot in hardcore way too early and and, and all for all the things that you just said yeah. overall, wow. over, overall, I just really appreciate the insight that you've given just over this entire interview And uh, your perspective And your time I know like one of the funny things you said In the type of thing is like you always look for something different You know You in all this time You still love the bands Like the Killing Times, the Mad Balls, the War Zones The the Maximum Penalties But I know from talking to you You've always loved the Swizz The Quicksand, the Burn, the Orange I The band that just skirted Just beyond just what everybody else was doing
1: Yep, no doubt
0: And um, I find that to be some of the most like our best conversations will be when you're like, hey, what do you think about this band? And, you know, have you ever thought about doing this? And it's always off the beaten path and something irregular. And I love that you still hold like a burning passion for some of these bands that obviously you were running into before you were ever at this career that you're you're thinking of a million shows that you have going on. You think about a million bands and a million responsibilities. You're still a father. You're a husband. Get a business, but you're still thinking about these old bands. Like, I wonder, you know, like, I love that your brain still goes back to this stuff and it just, it's stuff that now is embedded in me. Like, I always think about these bands. Like, I wonder what we could do with this. And it's, it's one of your great, I mean, there's many great attributes to you, but that's another one. Like, you still foster a deep love and respect and sincerity about these bands that touched you to the point that you would impart and put energy into them as a business. Ends. I think
1: it's great. Yeah, man. Well, look, you know, we, we started off this conversation by talking about it a little bit, you know, we're getting towards the end. Let me make this statement again. Like hardcore music means everything to me. It is who I am through and through. It's, it's, I live my life based off of things that, you know, I learned through being in punk rock and hardcore as a teenager. That shit made a dent it made it it's it's a brand and it it has stuck with me my entire life and the bands that played those shows and put out those records they mean everything to me and i'm when i i i can say that to me but you anybody from hardcore is going to talk like that that is what it means to those of us who are part of this and i really hope that you know in the years that like I've gotten older, that I'm, you know, a layer further outside of it. I mean, I, I still feel like I'm I'm pretty in it, but I'm pretty far away from it, too. And I, I hope that the fans of the bands that they're getting into now and the culture, I hope that it continues to make that same kind of, like, impression on people as this shit goes on.
0: Man, I, I couldn't ask for a better thing to come from you than that. And that is the epitome of what I, I drive towards in every episode and in every interviewer is that I know that hardcore. And I know that the drive within people is a lifelong commitment. And it's something that you, for the real lifers, whether you go off and you do something completely different in business or like you, you've made it your business. Hardcore is such a deep impact in, in people that, it just doesn't you just don't put away your shirts and forget about it if it really meant that much to you and i really appreciate you just embodying your feelings in that and that's a great way to end this interview tim can you give me a list of websites and stuff that people can go to to check out the various things we talked about and just some final words for people listening
1: uh yeah i mean i think number 1 is how are you going to edit this thing down? It's like three hours long. That's number one. Um, this is running at three,
0: three hours. <laughs> this is going. <laughs> it's crazy.
1: Um, nobody wants to hear us talk for this long. Um, you can check out uh, uh, soundtalentgroup.com. You can check out soundtalentpodcast.com. Uh, um those are, you know, the two you can check out live from dot events. That's the sh- live streaming stuff for the shows we're, we're doing there. Um, and, uh, you know, that that that's that, that's some of the business that we're we're associated with right now. Um, check those out. Support those things where you can if you want to. And, um Nito, final thoughts. I don't know, man. It's, it's been a great. Yeah. Check out Nito. Check out Neva. Those those are really important right now, and it's so crazy how government works. And I don't want to get into that at all. But like, the only way government works is if they feel like they're under pressure from people to do the right thing. They're not going to do the right thing. They'll only do the right thing if they're under pressure to do the right thing. So, like, the louder the voice is, and the more pressure that's put on, and the more those those entities are backed, the more. These motherfuckers will have to listen. So, you know, back it hard. Um and uh I don't know. Final thoughts? I don't know, man. It's been awesome to hang with you and and have this conversation and make me go think about some things I haven't thought about in a while and talk about some things I haven't, you know, talked about in a while. It's 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 been really cool to do. I mean, you're a mentor,
0: you're an inspiration, you're a big brother. Uh, we go to weddings together with our wives, (laughs) you know, like we have a a very close relationship on a lot of levels, but more importantly, I just thank you for being in my life. And I thank you for being honest and earnest and giving me three hours of your very busy time to kind of go over and show the world what's been in your head and the information and just the experience that you've gleaned over the last 30 years. And it means the world for me that you had this time. And I know it took us a while to get this which is why you weren't in the first 10 episodes, but it was absolutely amazing. And I'm so excited to finally have you be in our podcast. So thank you so much.
1: Oh yeah, man. Thank you, Joe. It's been awesome to to hang with you, man. And, uh, I know we'll get to see each other's face here in a a not too distant future. So, uh, thanks for having me on.
0: No, man. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I did just having that conversation. Tim is someone that I still look up to A mentor, a big brother Um, We go to Weddings together And in sad times we go to funerals Together He is the Perennial supporter of hardcore punk And one of our greatest Champions and it's amazing to see Him go way beyond Our world and become a Leader in the American Music industry And I I just had to have him on this podcast, and I hope that you take the time to listen to what he said and glean and try to learn from what he was putting down because it was absolutely just the most amazing thing for me to listen to, and I really hope that you understand the importance of that man and what he did for Hardcore. This is Hardcore podcast is supported by so many people, and the best way to support us is to follow us on the social medias the podcatchers, the apps, rate us on the iTunes, and give us some cool comments. January, I will have the first bit of Patreon content up. I'll work all that out. I'll post it on social media. There's nothing more satisfying than hearing from listeners when they pick up on specific guests and lessons they've learned. I really love that we are making some kind of impact here and that our listeners are getting the most out of what our guests have to offer. You can follow me at the Joe Hardcore on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow this is Hardcore at this is Hardcore Fest on Instagram or TIHC Fest on Twitter. Anytime we have a guest, we do a specific page on TIHC Podcast. And there's extra links, there's extra videos, there's cool pictures, so you can go to that. Thank you for supporting us. Next week we have Rob Sullivan of Ruiner. This is a guy who started out in punk rock in Baltimore, um, booked a hell of a lot of bands, worked at CCAS, toured a million shows all over the world with Ruiner, had a MMA career, which then launched into... Uh, Two separate businesses Which he's become very successful at His story His uh, wisdom His just excitement about Hardcore And the entire conversation He was smiling and it was just amazing to have And I just really am excited To hear you guys And what you guys think of it Because Rob is one of the more um, Creatively different people That I've met from Baltimore He's definitely a unique person And his story is absolutely fantastic, and the conversation is another one long one just like this, but it flew by. So until next week, be good. And if you are feeling down in the dumps and you need to talk to somebody, reach out and check on your friends. 21 years ago, I lost a friend named Carmen D'Amico. The night before he killed himself, he was talking to me on a payphone about going to a 25 life show. And instead, when I woke up, I found out that he took his own life. We never know when people are in that kind of dark world. And no matter what they're saying, we should always be trying to make sure that the people that we love are cared for and they know that they are important. So if you are able to reach out, reach out to your friends. And if you're feeling bad and you're feeling like you are going to take your own life, get help, reach out to me, reach out to somebody and please don't do it. Because the world loves you. Take care.